This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, who is away for the day, but he shall return. Do not despair. I'm joined here uh, by or with Cole Wissinger. Good morning, Jeffrey. Super excited to have him back from his long, long trip to Pittsburgh. He'll be back with us again on Friday for screen cleaning. Yep. Super excited about that as well. And uh, speaking of screen cleaning, we have a couple of guests on the show today that Really could have been on uh, screen cleaning. And our first guest, actually, uh, we're going to be speaking with Amanda Lotz, who's going to be talking about ESPN and the decline of cable television. This is kind of a hot topic because a lot of people are cutting their cable uh, cords. They're getting rid of the hefty cable bill. And, uh, it's you know, you get in this two-year contract – And after you're in the contract, all these cable companies start coming out with all these great deals that that their existing customers are no longer eligible for, only for new customers. There's just no reward to sticking around. I spent the entire time while I was visiting my elderly parents trying to convince them that it's time to cut their cord. Yeah, and, you know, we'll be talking to her about Netflix and Hulu and YouTube, and there are just so many other options out there that are so much cheaper, and you can pick and choose what you want to watch, and you don't have to have, you know, $65 worth of nothing sitting on your DVR that you'll never get around to. But don't cut your ESPN until after today. Today is August 8th, 8-8, and all day today on ESPN U which is kind of devoted to college sports. BYU fans might be interested in that. But ESPNU today has become ESPN The Ocho. Really? With all of the ridiculous sports you hoped to ever see on television gathered together. I spent last night watching some disc golf championship. No. The World Darts Championship will be on later today, (laughs) etc. Wow. Whenever you say Ocho, it just makes me think of nachos. Mm. Then I get hungry. I thought you were going to say that today is 8-8, which means that it is bowling day. That, of course, is the sound of me getting a strike, something I frequently do. You know, I once bowled a 210, and nobody believed me. I even had the printout to prove it. Nobody believed me. 210, to get a 210, you have to get six strikes in a row, or at least that's what I did. It Bowling was kind of, scoring is a different kind of math that you have to go and get a different kind of degree for. I don't even bother. I just pay attention to what the screen tells me I have. Mm-hmm. What's your highest bowling score, Cole? So I haven't cracked 200 yet, but in my final semester here at BYU, I will be taking a bowling class. There you go. This fall. So we'll see. I'll update you with my high scores as we go. Terry, what's the highest score you've ever gotten? No idea. <laughs> don't really pay attention. Come Just, on. No, I'm serious. You don't, I have no idea. You don't frame these and put them up in your room? No. See, the 210 was a fluke. The only, the closest I've ever gotten to that is a 190, and now it's just, if you break 100, it's a good, it's a good time. <laughs> anyway, it's bowling day. It's also happiness 
happens day. So if you're happy today, you know, it happens. Sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. Hopefully it happens for you more often than not. All that ahead. But first, let's talk to Terry South, who's going to be giving us a taste of what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry, what's up? Manhunt is underway after a rookie police officer was shot and killed at a traffic stop in Clinton, Missouri, police said. The officer, Gary Michael, who was uh, with the force less than a year, pulled over a suspicious vehicle around 1045 p.m. on Sunday, according to Missouri State Highway Patrol. When Michael exited his vehicle to initiate contact with the driver, he was shot. Uh, They added that the officer fired back, but it's unknown if the uh, driver was struck. Investigators told ABC News Monday that uh, the officer initially pulled over the driver because the vehicle's headlights were off. And once Michael ran the plates, he discovered the vehicle's plates were also expired. The police have a person of interest they are searching for. As I said, that manhunt is underway. Just a few weeks ahead of the 16th anniversary of September 11th, 2001 attacks, the New New York City Medical Examiner's Office was able to identify the remains of a man killed at the World Trade Center. The man, whose name was withheld at the request of his family, is the World Trade Center's 1,641st identified victim. Medical examiner's office says they have been unable to identify the remains of 1,112 people, or about 40% of those who died in the attacks. Earlier this year, the medical examiner's office started using new DNA technology and started testing remains again. This is what helped them identify the man's remains after earlier testing gave them no results. It's the first new victim identified since March of 2015. So there's well over 1,000 people that are unaccounted for from that attack back in 2001. I still can't believe that was 16 years ago. Yeah. Seems like Sheesh. A long time. Um, on Monday, Netflix made its first ever acquisition, snapping up a comic book publisher, Miller World. Are ever. you familiar with them? No. Huh. Uh, while terms of the deal were not disclosed, Netflix apparently plans to use Miller World's 18 separate character worlds, which is crazy for something that, you know, has been greatly... I guess obscure. It's interesting. So they have uh, they've created films and TV shows and children's TVs, children's series. That's kind of the plan. Is just yeah. there's a wide variety of topics they can use. Their comic narratives have already been used in three successful movie franchises, including Wanted and The Kingsman. Oh yeah, which they have the uh, sequel to that one coming out at the end of September. Those were both big hits, and together they've grossed close to a billion dollars in box office revenue worldwide. So they've shown that. They have some legs to them. So there you go. Netflix purchased them. It's a third major comic book publisher to be bought by a larger media company. This is kind of weird because it goes Warner Brothers acquired by DC, or they acquired DC Comics in 1968. So they're going to reference that with this story that happened yesterday, <laughs> but that's fine. And Disney, of course, purchased Marvel in 2009. So Netflix is tossing their hat in trying to uh, get into that sort of... so vein of topics and uh, you know characters and different franchises they can try to turn into properties 18 characters 18 it says character universes what did it say it said 18 separate character worlds so how do they make a children's show out of characters like from wanted and well, it won't kingsman be, it and- won't be that they have other characters that huh. are more kid friendly okay you know what i mean so there's a variety <laughs> of topics they can pick from Hmm. It's not all rated R content, which is wanted and uh, and uh, what was the other Kingsman. one? Oh, Kingsman. Those yeah. are those are more adult. Yes, you know, okay, fair, but uh, they could good. have kid friendly type topics. Dude, that's interesting. And Can I, you I, name one uh, kid friendly Netflix original? 
Um, there's uh, Dino Trucks. Beat okay. Bugs. Beat Bugs. Beat Bugs. Uh, Voltron's on there. That's kid-friendly. Good for you guys. I, it just seems like anybody out there that is interested in creating kid-friendly uh, original content would have an easy sell to Netflix because they don't really have a lot, it seems. Or it's not really what was the one? as prominent as the other no. R-rated ones. Dream Wor- DreamWorks has put out several. One of them was um, – Is it Turbo? There's Turbo. Turbo, well, Turbo just – I think they had a TV series. Yeah, there was the dragons. They were flying – the guys that tamed – they tamed dragons. How to train your dragon. Yeah, there you go. They have a, there's a TV series. <laughs> there's a series of those. Okay. Um, and then Puss in Boots. Yeah. They've recently put out one of those, and on your iPad, it's actually a choose-your-own-adventure. Hmm. And so my son loves it because as you scroll through, you know, on your, your iPad, you scroll through and all the offerings on Netflix, they're all just static pictures, except the one for Puss in Boots, he's waving at you. Oh, yes. I've yeah. seen that. And so you hit it, and it's fun because he, he all of a sudden goes, what should I do? Should I do this or should I do this? And the kid can select and go oh, that direction down the I'm path. I'm going to show that to my girls. I think they would enjoy that. So instead of Dora the Explorer waiting for you to yell at the screen, you right. actually can interact with the screen. Yes. Yeah, and they're testing it out because they want to do more possibly interactive uh, content that way because the kid could you know, find it more of, a, of something more enjoyable other than just staring at the screen, which they do anyways. I recently read uh, a couple of those Choose Your Own Adventure books right. to my girls. Mm-hmm. And I think they were a little scared, but they and but they always want to read the one about the witch in the scary house. Yeah, and uh, you know they'll tell me which which adventure they want to choose, and I'll I'll be like, no, we already did that one. We're gonna open up the cellar door. <laughs> right. Now those books, you get to the bottom of the page. It usually gives you two or three options. Right. And you go to that page. You flip to page sixty-eight. Then you go down to the end of page sixty-eight and go to page four. You know that kind of thing. I, my first time picking up one of those books in elementary school, I read it cover to cover. Oh, really? So confusing. Oh, my goodness. Like, the story's horrible. If you just read every single page in order, you're like, I don't get this. And finally, you're like, oh, wait. Yeah. Every single page told me to go to a different page. So Hmm. I would write down every individual page number, and then I would just go through an adventure as, you know, as I chose, and then I would make sure that I some I, in the end I would I will have gone through every single page of that adventure so I could find out what happened in every scenario. Oh wow! I I've had to edit them down a little bit for my girls. Yeah. You know when somebody dies falls over from a heart attack yeah. I will say then he fell down and was tired or <laughs> was he got hurt. <laughs> I have to edit sometimes for the kids. Finally, this this story, I, I found this quite funny yesterday. A real estate savvy couple is now the proud owner of the streets and sidewalks of an uber wealthy, uber exclusive San Francisco gated community in Presidio Terrace. Whoa. Which is right near a, a, an exclusive golf course. Right? Yeah. So the residents of the 35 mega mansions lining this private oval-shaped street are pushing back again. Uh, uh, pushing back reports the San Francisco Chronicle. The uh, South Bay couple, they're from San Jose, I believe. Uh, Tina Lam and Michael Chang scooped up the street in a city-run auction for a little over $90,000 in 2015. What? So no. the, the street was up for grabs due to an unpaid property taxes that the Community Homeowners Association neglected to pay for 30 years. Oh, my goodness. Right? That's so they, big. They, they That's huge. Pay, they didn't pay property taxes on the street and the common areas in this oval. So, like, there's a green, like, little park area in the middle. For 30 years. For 30 years. Now, it says, seeking to recover the $14 owed per year, the city put the street up for sale. 
right? So it's fourteen dollars a year. I, I'm imagining they didn't know this existed. Wow. Right. Plus interest and penalties, the bill amounted to a whopping nine hundred ninety-four dollars. Right? Oh my goodness. And you're looking as it says here, Uber wealthy, Uber exclusive, private. And they didn't pay $14 a year. Right. So the residents say they didn't know about the back taxes or sale until this May when the t- a title search company hired by Chang and Lam sent out letters asking property owners if they were interested in buying the street back. Hmm. So all of a sudden... All I these... wonder if they're going to charge more than $994 for that. Maybe. I'm guessing. Chang, Chang and Lam's property comes with plenty of financial opportunity, including making residents pay for the street parking in front of their own home. Oh, on a private road. What a slap in the face. The Homeowners Association has petitioned the Board of Supervisors to negate the sale. A hearing is scheduled for October, and uh, they sued the couple and the city in an attempt to block the property being sold to anyone else while the appeal is pending. So they just can't get out of the situation and pass it off, and they have to deal with somebody else. So they could charge like 150 bucks a parking spot. There's, there's, I think there's about 70 to 120 something parking spots around this oval and they're private streets. Apparently they're all over San Francisco and they pay $14. It's a, some mandate by the city. It's $14 a year in property taxes for the street and common areas. You think it'd be higher in such a posh, you know, wealthy neighborhood. Yeah. Kudos for San Francisco for not. (laughs) Succumbing to inflation and keeping that fourteen dollars firm. And so th- these these two, you know, this couple looking for property. You, you uh, uh, different cities and things will put things up for auction, and so they start looking through all the records and they're like, "Wait a second, look at this!" And so they bought it. No, they outbid a couple other people, and then the letters go out and like the people that have lived there that own these massive houses have no idea that someone just <laughs> bought the street out in front of their house. See, you know, uh, it makes. Perfect business sense, but I don't think that this couple is going to be invited to any of the neighborhood block parties. No. I don't think I'm, they I'm want just to guessing, be, though. Going out on a limb. What could you get for someone's street? Oof. I have no idea. I, can't, I cannot believe that that was overlooked for 30 years. Yeah. Wow. It's pretty funny. So they're, they're up in arms trying to stop it, and the, the guy that owns it's like, hey, I just wanted to know if you guys wanted to buy your street back. Yeah, I'll, I'll sell it back to you for a generous hundred fifty thousand dollars. You, you pay whatever massive amounts these mega mansions are, and you can't park in front of your house. Yeah, that'd be a little. Well, mega mansions have mega garages, right? Well, they have They're garages. They're not hurting. No, but at the same time, if anyone shows up, do they pull? I mean, you, they have to pay. They have to pay because it's a parking spot. Or do you rent it out to anyone in the area that wants to park on the street? They're never going to have visitors ever again. You just have random people just pulling their Buick up in front of the house. Can we go to Uncle John's house? Yeah. Nope. It's $150. <laughs> Maybe in a couple of years. When we've saved up a little more money. Wow. Well, good for them for, for paying attention, I guess, and, and uh, striking while the iron was hot and... Getting that uh, that sale or getting purchasing that uh, that land, wow! Anyway, just a reminder to uh, pay your bills, pay attention to the fine print, then you won't have to pay to park in front of your own home. That's all right. We don't like it when people park in front of our home anyway. That hundred fifty dollar price tag keeps them away. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, Terry just uh, shared some information about Netflix and some of the content that's on there, and it's it's crazy. 
just the amount of original content that is being created for streaming services like Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime and YouTube. I mean, so much so that a lot of people are ditching their cable in favor of these new services. And our next guest, Amanda Lotz, is going to be talking to us about ESPN, some of the problems that they're having, and also a little bit about what the future of cable is, whether there's going to continue to be a decline or not. When we return, this is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt. And uh, we're, we're going to be speaking with Amanda Lotz, who is uh, a professor of media studies at the University of Michigan. Earlier this spring, ESPN announced that they were laying off more people. And over the past two years, ESPN has lost around 7 million subscribers. And Cole, during the break, was saying how sad that makes him. Cable subscriptions in general have been on the decline since companies such as Sling, Netflix, and Hulu have taken over the entertainment industry. But does the downfall of ESPN show a stronger trend in the decline of cable television? Well, here to speak with us today is Amanda Lotz, who, as I mentioned, is a professor of media studies at the University of Michigan and the author of the book, We Now Disrupt This Broadcast, How Cable Transformed Television and the Internet Revolutionized It. Amanda, welcome back to The Matt Townsend Show. Very glad to join you, Jeff. So uh, I'm really excited to talk to you about this uh, because I am currently contemplating cutting my cable so that we can just focus more on streaming services such as Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime. Uh, I was hoping that you could start off by talking to us a little bit about the evolution of television and and cable television and and some of the purposes and how things have changed throughout the years. Sure. So as television launched in the United States, it was first available only by broadcast. Uh, which meant if you can remember back, you probably had an antenna up. Uh, you received those signals over the air. But in some parts of the country, uh, typically in mountainous areas, there were obstacles that prevented those broadcast signals from reaching households. And that was where the cable industry came from, uh, was to help those homes that were down in the valleys receive those same signals. And so for the first 20, 30 years of cable history, it was nothing more than a service that brought broadcast channels to the home. Then in the 1970s, uh, some regulations changed and the industry actually began to develop its own content and its own channels. And that's sort of where we've been since the, through the 1980s, but that was really the decade that cable took off in the United States. What has changed recently is that a new way for video content to arrive at your home developed, and that's over the Internet. And so this can be really confusing because for many of us, our Internet provider and our cable provider is the same company. Um, And so sometimes we think about these things as being different and sometimes the same. Um, And so I can talk you through some of the differences between the technologies and the way that we're paying for them. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned in in, uh, in We Now Disrupt This Broadcast, how cable transformed tele- television and the Internet revolutionized it. You talked about 
ESPN, and you say that ESPN was the the top grossing network, and how that's changed. Why do you think it has changed? Well, the perception has largely been that ESPN was invincible to some of the changes that were developing, and that has to do with the particularity of ESPN's content. So whereas other programs, let's say you like The Walking Dead, but maybe you're willing to wait for it to come on another service or you're going to record it and watch it later. So all of these changes that DVRs brought to some of our viewing behaviors uh, that took away people from that live advertiser-based audience, ESPN really was immune from that because so many of the sports contests, people aren't recording those and watching them later. They're watching them live. So that was one thing that ESPN that may had that made it different. And then the second thing is, is real exclusivity. Uh, because of the, the multi-million and billion dollar licenses that ESPN was willing to pay for different sports leagues, they really were the only place to access a lot of those contests. And so if you were a fan of something and the only place you could watch it was on ESPN, uh, then you know, that really made ESPN a must-have for cable subscribers. The result of that was ESPN is owned by Disney, and that really having that kind of must-have content gave Disney a lot of power in the negotiations that take place between the cable channels, uh, so ESPN, uh, CNN, PBS, all of those channels. They negotiate deals with your cable provider. So cable is actually two different businesses, cable channels and cable providers. So for me, my cable provider is Comcast, but it could also be a satellite provider like DirecTV. For each home that receives ESPN, uh, a cable provider pays a monthly fee. And so ESPN's fee was much is much, much higher than any other cable channels. And that's because ESPN could say, well, if you don't carry us, you know, people are going to go to your, your competing service because we are offering this content that no one else can access. Yeah. And, and, and that's really what sort of set ESPN up to be in this position where it was perceived as different from the rest of the cable industry. You know, it's interesting because I'm actually a Los Angeles Dodgers fan, and the only place you can watch those games is uh, if you have Time Warner Cable. At which, of course, I don't. So that excludes a lot of people from seeing those games. Um, interesting. So do you feel like ESPN is, is a good representation of, of the rest of the cable industry? Well, I think we had started to see some change in the rest of the industry. And what really caught has caught people by surprise was the fact that ESPN um, is proving vulnerable as well. And the, the big change, I guess, if we've had a number of changes in the last few years, but the, the, the thing that's changed in the last just one or two years, I'd say really since 2015, has been the emergence of these other services. Um, you might have heard them called skinny bundles. Um, right. In the industry, we call them virtual MVPDs, which is a mouthful. Um, but these are companies, or these are services like Sling TV, uh, Sony View. In the last year, both Hulu and YouTube are, have launched these services as well. And what they are is a package of channels that is delivered to you by internet. So it's a lot like cable, but it's actually coming over the internet. And yeah. what that's done is it's changed the, the economics of the business some. 
Yeah, you know, and speaking of the internet, I and getting back to the Dodgers too. Um, <laughs> uh, instead of watching a three or a four hour game, I can go online and just see a minute and a half highlight of all the best parts of the game. And then I don't have to see all the lulls and play. I can just focus on the best of the game. So, yeah, it seems like there are other options now for people to get the same entertainment in a shorter amount of time and not get it from ESPN. Right. It's interesting that you bring up baseball because Major League Baseball really has been at the forefront of a lot of the technological change and with its MLB TV um, internet distributed service. So, you know, that was something where if you are truly a baseball fan and you can't access your team because maybe you don't live in that market and you know, as you note, um, your service provider doesn't have those games, uh, they've made a very good business out of creating a internet provided service for fans to reach those games. Um, And so I think we're seeing MLB being pretty far ahead of some of the other sports in in that way. And I think that has to do with some of the particularities of baseball in comparison with other sports. Um, But I think we are likely to see more of those sorts of packages being made available directly by the leagues uh, in, in coming years. Amanda, let's do this. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to talk to you a little bit more about uh, some of those streaming services, and then maybe you could provide an idea or two of of what cable TV could do if there's anything they can do if they're if, or if this uh, decline is going to continue. I've got an idea of myself that I want to share with you. Uh, let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll continue the discussion with Amanda Lotz, who is a professor of media studies at the University of Michigan. When we return, this is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We're speaking with Amanda Lotz, who is a professor of media studies at the University of Michigan and the author of We Now Disrupt This Broadcast, How Cable Transformed Television and the Internet Revolutionized It All. Amanda, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you. So uh, before the break, you started talking a little bit about some of the streaming services that have really been on the incline whereas uh, cable seems to be on the decline. Um, Talk to us more about how you feel uh, these streaming services are going to continue to affect cable. And uh, maybe let's talk about ESPN first, and then we'll we'll talk about cable TV in general, some ideas of of what they're going to need to do to to try to get back on top, or if that's even possible. So let's start with uh, Netflix and Hulu and Sling. What do you see as the future of these streaming services? What I think we're seeing is competition in the marketplace for the first time. So the cable industry has been extremely uncompetitive because they're, in, for most subscribers, you have very little competition. So basically you have one cable provider available in your city and you have a satellite service. And what has happened over the years is that the cable channels – uh, required the same deal of uh, both 
cable providers and satellite providers. So uh, consumers really had no choice. You could either get a really big bundle and pay a whole bunch of money from your cable provider, or you could do the exact same thing from satellite. So there really wasn't a choice in service. And so what we're seeing now with the Internet distributed services is choice for the first time. For a long time, I think people have called for something called a la carte, uh, which is this idea that you'd be able to access just and pay for just particular channels and build your own package. Right. And the Internet distributed technology is is getting us closer and closer to that. So it's not going to be what I think a lot of people imagined a la carte might be back in the 90s. Um, but there is increasingly the possibility of developing those more finely tuned packages. Yeah, and you know, as a as a cable consumer myself, I'm kind of to the point where I look at my uh TV consumption and it's just it's just not there all that much and we're paying $65 a month and we're kind of the point where we feel like why are we letting these this cable company push us around <laughs> because mm-hmm. we don't even watch most of this content and you know I know that uh, channels like HBO are are just allowing you the opportunity to and, and through your cable provider too to just have HBO and not all the other channels and that's huge for you know channels like HBO that have these shows that people simply cannot wait to watch like Game of Thrones and uh so i think they're starting to see that people just aren't going to put up with it anymore right i think the big thing that's been holding change back is that television has been primarily an ad supported medium and ad when when television is ad supported you have i mean basically the economic transaction that's going on there is that the channels are creating programming to attract an audience and then that audience is being sold to advertisers and all of these new technologies that allow us to control when we watch and how we watch most of those aren't real great for advertisers and and the technology hasn't quite been there in order to take advantage of audiences viewing in that way, which is why we've seen services such as HBO and Showtime largely leading the way into these new forms of distribution because they are subscriber funded. They don't have to deal with advertisers at all. You're paying for that content. Um, And so really they have this incentive to try to make people as happy with the viewing experience as, as they can. We are now just in the last year, actually the last few months, we've seen announcements from AMC as a channel and just this week from FX that they are making a service available for you to access the content from those channels in that same kind of subscriber-based way. And so we're certainly going to look at paying more for those services than the amount that those channels have been receiving from cable service providers, but that has to do with uh, we're taking that ad support out of their their financial equation, and so they're seeking to make up that money in subscriber fee. You just made my day because two of my favorite TV shows come from AMC and and FX. It's Fargo and Better Call Saul. So I'm excited. (laughs) So, okay, now let's, let's get back to ESPN a little bit. Do you think that ESPN can change their strategy and get back on top? Is that possible? I think ESPN is in a tough position. And if you really think about what cable channels are, um, they're, they're middlemen. For the most part, what they've been doing is gathering and organizing content for viewers. And really what the Internet does that is challenging the old 
business model is that they're allowing the content creators, whether that's a film and television studio or a sports league, to interact more directly with the consumer. And so if a sports league like, like MLB uh, wants to develop the customer-facing infrastructure and avoid that middleman entirely, I, I have no doubt that their financial planners have identified how much money they would need to make um, off of a subscription and how many subscribers that they would need to have in order for a direct-to-consumer offer to be more valuable than the sports league licenses. And right now, the sports leagues are taking advantage of the fact that the television and, and cable channels have been willing to pay these long-term, really big licensing deals. And so that, that has given them some guaranteed income in a, a period of considerable change. And the downside of that is that it's really tough on ESPN. Right. That they had these forecasts of how much money they thought they'd be able to be making. They had no real sense that subscriber numbers could decrease uh, to the extent that they have just in this last year. And hence uh, the many, many layoffs that they've experienced. Right. That's really the only... Uh, cost that they can cut because many of these licenses go on in through the 2020s uh, and, and, you know, they are commitments that can't be changed. Yeah. Okay. Now let's just talk about cable TV in general. Now I've had this idea that, well, I'm sure they've thought of it before, but in my mind as a consumer, I'm thinking I would be so much more likely to remain loyal to a cable company if they would just get rid of that pesky phone part of the triple play offer that they have. I mean, first of all, I don't even know who still has a landline anymore. I do think that some cable companies are starting to offer a triple play with a a mobile contract instead of a landline. But why is it, do you think, that they're so uh, insistent that they hold on to that phone part of this contract? Obviously, I mean, obviously they want the money, but... Do you think that – why haven't they thought of that as a way to to uh, hold on to some of these customers? Well, I think the ones that are making a mobile play available, it has to do with them actually owning um, or having an arrangement with a mobile provider. So in order – the landline comes from the fact that they've already got all the technology there. Um, they are offering its voice over IP. They're offering the triple play because in their – they're wired into your home, they can, they can provide all that service. Most of the companies that are cable service providers do not own any um, inter- mobile phone infrastructure, and so that's a competing service. So, I'm sorry, is it a true landline or is it an Internet uh, line? In most cases, it is, it is an Internet line. It's voice over IP. Um, so it, it, that's what I'm talking to you on right now is a... a it seems to be a landline, but it is uh, an internet protocol um, that is sending the message. Okay. So, you know, cable TV now has all this competition with Netflix and Hulu and Sling and all these other providers that we've been talking about. Do you think cable TV will ever be the same? And if not, what is it that they need to change to at least continue to compete with all of these streaming services? So we need to back up and break down, again, the difference between those cable businesses. So the cable channels are being um, 
challenged by companies such as Netflix and others that are now creating content that is attracting our attention. So the cable channels, I'd say, like ESPN, are probably in the most danger. The cable service providers are actually in a great position. They have quietly transformed themselves into being internet service providers. In fact, many of the companies that we might think of as cable companies now have more internet subscribers than cable subscribers. So not only do they have more people paying for that service, but the margins are also better because they're really not paying for the content. So they're actually in a very good position as internet service providers because as people do cut cable packages, and yes, they, they lose some money there, but they're, that probably means that your internet data consumption is going to increase. And one thing that a number of the companies have, again, quietly done is change their billing procedures so that it is not actually an all-you-can-use internet um, bundle that you're buying anymore, but that you have a cap. And so normal home internet consumption right now, um, most people won't hit that cap, but some of the new technologies that are coming in, such as ultra 4K quality uh, video, that's a much bigger, that requires a lot more data, so that could start pushing people into using more and more data. So the, the cable, what we thought of as the cable companies are now actually the internet service providers, and they're actually in a pretty good position for all of this. That's so interesting because I've noticed that my internet bill is almost as much as my cable bill. So, yeah, just like you said, they really are more of an internet provider than than cable providers. Well, Amanda Lotz, we appreciate your time here on the Matt Townsend Show. She is the author of We Now Disrupt This Broadcast, How Cable Transformed Television and the Internet Revolutionized It. She is also a professor of media studies at the University of Michigan. And her research focuses on U.S. television, specifically the industrial shifts since the end of the network era, and on representations of gender on television and in the media. And again, Amanda, we really appreciate your time. When we return, we'll continue the fun and continue the discussion here on The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show, and uh, joined here by Terry South and Cole Wissinger. I'm Jeff Simpson, covering for Dr. Matt. And earlier, Cole mentioned that uh, it was today is when ESPN is introducing the Ocho, and I commented that it made me hungry because I made me think of nachos. And Terry inevitably, you know, on the days that I'm hungriest. He'll come in with these food stories, and well, usually it's like a, a fair food. Well, at this moment. Yeah. I also have lists of ballpark food that we could still go through <sighs> because you go to the baseball, the Major League Baseball ballparks try to compete with each other to have the most absurd food you can possibly have. Oh, yeah. Well, you got to do something to rattle the cages and something crazy that will get people to check out this food and come to the ballpark. I don't know that anybody's going to the – actually, I take that back. Usually when I'm going to the ballpark, the thing that I'm looking forward to the most is the food. Really? Yeah. I like it when the food gets out there and runs during the seventh inning stretch. <laughs> oh. <laughs> the sausage races, yes. Or, yeah, and yeah, And in Pittsburgh, yeah. we have pierogi races. Yeah. Uh, no, but, yeah, the, the thing that I focus on at the, at the ballpark is the food 
and trying not to get hit in the face by a baseball. There's that too. Yes. The other the other time, of course, this time of year, they have a lot of state fairs. We've already talked about our opinions. Cole went feelings. to one while he was away. So Cole, you went to it was Pennsylvania. Yeah, it's our county fair, county not fair. a state fair. Right. Okay, um, but it's a pretty big deal. Right, from. absolutely. <laughs> it's where everyone comes from all around. The 4-H clubs have been raising those cattle all year, and they want to show them off. Exactly. Or pigs or sheep or whatever. And kids want to see them. Right. So is the county or the state fair more depressing? I don't, I don't know if depressing is the right word. That's more of your opinion. But you agreed with me when I made that I, there, assessment. There, there might be some depressing features. Okay. Mainly we talked about the uh, the inevitable hot tub tent that's trying to sell you a hot tub. Yes. Or, or, There's bath fitters sometimes that will yeah. try to like. There's just people just hawking things mm-hmm. and it turns into a swap meet. And it's like, well, is this what we're doing? And that's kind of how those people yeah. pay rent to be there type of thing. It's not just the kind of – so there, it's a money-making venture for the state yeah. fair. So uh, whatever. But that are, there are better things. Yeah, there's that. other features. There's – you know, you get rides, concerts, food, all this stuff. So The food is the, the, the highlight The food is though. usually what shows up because people make some crazy stuff. And it's always like something that's deep fat fried that's mm-hmm. some crazy thing. To eat. What did you see at your county fair out there? Deep fried anything. So deep fried Snickers, Twinkies, Oreos. Yeah. Those are your standard. Fair for, staples, for yeah. candy wise, but then there's also deep fried pickles, cauliflower, mm-hmm. and the fruity or the the vegetable-y kind of things. I would totally do cauliflower. More yeah. of your health conscious, mm-hmm. yeah, deep fat deep fried <laughs> food. Yeah. Exactly. Um, endless drinks as well. You can get a barrel mug that's about right. a quart size that you pay exorbitant amounts of money for sure. that you can come back and refill. You for get your type two diabetes more. at the fair. Yes. yes. Nice. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And then just general local grub. Uh, there we have pierogies are a big thing and strombolis, um, but those are all normal. Wasn't he in Pinocchio? Yes, okay. both of them. <laughs> and stromboli. At my what? fair, we have what's called dippy pizza. Okay, which is just deep fried like crust pizza crust. It's nothing on it, and then you sprinkle some Parmesan cheese, mm. dip it in marinara sauce, and it's. The cheapest thing there because it's literally just the dough and it's still about six bucks for like six little slices. Now, I'm oh, wow. guessing a three year old named that because that sounds like something that would be said around my house. Dippy pizza. Dippy pizza. We say circle crackers and potty. I mean, everybody says potty, but yeah. it's to the point now where my wife and I are saying that to each other like, oh, I just need to go potty real quick. Yeah, that's when you've crossed the line. You need to. <laughs> Change some discussions in your home. Um, let's see here. So at the Wisconsin State Fair, which is the article mm-hmm. I found here, they have these cream puffs, but they're the size of like, you know, you get your normal sort of like paper plate. Uh-huh. They're that big. Oh, They're not no. like little tiny ones. They're just massive. And they say you can either just like a sandwich pick them up or knife and fork or they people do like the Oreo thing where you take the top off and then you have just the cream. Yeah, I mean, just so many ways to they're, eat these. They're, they're I just, can't picture anyone at my fair using a knife and fork <laughs> yeah, for no. any food. They're just so big. Um, I'm going to do that now the next time I go. Let's see. What else do they so – that's, that's kind of their staple apparently in Wisconsin is the cream puff. Um, let's see. They also have uh, all things jerky. Really? Right. They have a jerky pavilion, apparently, of some sort. Huh. And there are alligator, kangaroo, ostrich, wild boar, python, and turtle. 
See now, those I would think are more expensive meats. Well, you, so not yeah. something you would typically see at the fair or but, Wisconsin in general. Did they have no. to import the alligator? Like, well, they're they're like prepackaged too. So uh. it's called Big Game Meat Snacks, Buffalo Bob's Big Game Meat Snacks, and so they have. Yeah, so you see there's the... So is it possible that they just contain like a very small amount of that particular protein? Uh, anything's possible. Protein? But okay. what do you think would be the best tasting of all those? Alligator, kangaroo, ostrich, wild boar, python, or turtle? Ooh. Um, so I've had rattlesnake. Okay. If python's mm. anything like that, it's probably pretty decent. But yeah. I want to try wild boar. Well, it'd just be that like sounds pork, exciting. right? Yeah. I would try alligator. Yeah. Because that would be a way for me to get over my fear of alligators. Okay. Reminding them who is on top of the food chain. Right. When they're prepackaged in a bag, yeah. it's I Jeff. am definitely on when top of it. When they are not prepackaged in a bag. When I'm like swimming near one, then yeah, I'm the lowest. And then the one that this uh, news report singled out was, oh, of course they have everything deep fried. You got vegetables and just. Twinkies, you know, you're normal as we talked about before. It's normal stuff across the nation. It used to be weird when you took a Twinkie and deep fried it. Now it's like if it's not it's there, expected. it's not really a state fair, mm-hmm. right? Well, now they're doing. They call it cricket nachos. Hmm. As in the bugs. Yes, cricket nachos. Are they? Hmm. Are they deep fried or uh, how do I have to eat no. them? So the sign that's up on this. Uh, Display here. It says cricket nachos, tortilla chips topped with cheese, and crickets. And in parentheses, it says, "Yes, they are real." Can I see the picture? Yeah, hold on a second. Okay. And then it says, uh, "Good source of protein." So they're trying to justify your it. purchase. And then it says, "Be proud to say, I eat bugs." Exactly. Yeah, I don't know that. Pride is the right thing. So I'll, I'll describe it, then I'll show you the picture. Okay. You have the nachos. Mm-hmm. Then you put your nacho cheese on it. I'm there so right? far. Then you sprinkle crickets. That's where you lose me. <sighs> the bottom picture there. Oh, no. <laughs> That's like a health inspector has oh. come into a gas station yeah. and has discovered... That the nachos are no good. There is a health violation. So here. now you yeah. wonder how they discovered that that could be eaten. Exactly. Their food truck. Someone had to. Someone had to try this. And just go, That's had not crickets. bad. Someone. Not bad. Yeah. Someone had to receive a major fine, and then they realized, wait a minute, how can we turn this into a good thing? So yeah, it's wow. I saw that last night, and I'm like, well, if you turn the cricket, I don't know. You could use them in many different ways, but but just dropping the bugs on top of the you know. Chips isn't really the best way to, and they're not even like covered up. You know, I mean, you could eat anything with ketchup on it. I'm pretty convinced with that. Nacho cheese, probably the same, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Hmm. I don't know if they, I mean, if it would help the. Yeah, that it, I'll put the picture on Twitter. It's pretty uh, interesting to see just crickets sitting on top of nachos. <laughs> just <laughs> if you're just returning from the bathroom, this is the Matt Townsend show, and yes, we have been talking about cricket nachos, part of the Wisconsin State Fair. But does a does a jerky pavilion sound interesting? Like someplace you may want to go and peruse and see what actually is in there. Absolutely. I would be, let's just say I'd be more likely to go into that pavilion than the spa pavilion. Okay. Or the cricket pavilion? Definitely. Okay.
Definitely. Anyway, the Matt Townsend Show is the best place to get your fair food news. And we will continue to bring you such news. I think we're even going to be talking about stadium food later on in the Matt Townsend Show. We're here on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143. And when we return, we'll continue the fun here on the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, who's away for the day, as well as uh, Terry South is here and Cole Wissinger. We've got the whole group here, minus Matt Townsend, of course. And uh, we've really got a great show. Today, of course, is, oh, uh, we're calling it the Ocho, or that's what ESPN is calling it. But it's also Bowling Day. That is the sound of Dr. Matt Townsend bowling. Gutter ball. Gutter ball. Nothing more humiliating than the gutter ball. And uh, having to face all your friends after that. Well, it's a little more humiliating to just play with the bumpers so you don't get the gutter ball than just being a man about it Is and it though? bowling the proper gutter ball. But if everybody's using the gutter ball, eh. that's fine. But the gutter ball, there's nothing. Actually, I take it back. The only thing that's worse than getting the gutter ball is getting a gutter ball with the bumpers up. There you go. That's just. That's the worst. Jeff there's knows no, from experience. There's no coming back from that. Uh, actually, I don't know from experience because as uh, you may have, may recall on the show earlier, I mentioned that I bowled a 210. Which I bowled you take great pride in for some reason. Six strikes in a row. That's two turkeys, by the way. The double turkey. Mm. Every My goal for every single Thanksgiving. I could go for a couple of turkeys right now. Mm-hmm. Sounds good to me. And it is, also, it is also Happiness Happens Day, founded in 1999 under the name of Admit Your Happy Day by the Secret Society of Happy People. Happiness <laughs> or uh, – yeah, I'm not going to go there. Anyway, Happiness Happens Day aims to spread the joy of being happy and to persuade people to look on the brighter side of life. I think they changed it once they realized that maybe admit you're happy was a little uh, pessimistic. No, it's a little forcible, I guess. Uh. You're going to be happy. Admit you're happy. Admit it. Happiness happens day. So hopefully you can find something to be happy about today and each and every day, really. We're also going to be speaking about on the program uh, what is – the most extreme thing you've ever done to get out of trouble. I don't want you to answer just yet, but maybe we can – I want you to think about that so that you've got that question in your mind so that when I ask it again, you'll have a response for something extreme that you did to get out of trouble. Well, there's a lady, uh, a Chinese woman, who went so far as to change her appearance. She took medical – Measures to change her appearance to get out of trouble. 
So we'll talk more about that in just a minute here. But first, let's talk to Terry South, who's going to be giving us a taste of what's going on around the rest of the country. A lawsuit against two psychologists who helped design the CIA's torture program will go to trial. U.S. District Court Judge Justin Quackenbush uh, ruled Monday in Spokane, Washington. The American Civil Liberties Union is suing the psychologists James Mitchell and John Bruce Jensen on behalf of two CIA detainees and the family of a third detainee who froze to death in a CIA prison. The men who were taken into CIA custody in the war on terror were physically assaulted, subjected to extreme temperatures, and chained in painful stress positions that kept them awake for days on end. This according to the ACLU. The trial begins September 5th. So this, this should be the first time that the CIA has to kind of answer some questions wow. about the, ter- the, what do they call it, the Enhanced Interrogation Program. Huh. That's a so, nice way of putting it, we'll, I guess. We'll see how that, that stands up to the uh, to the courts. Authorities in South Carolina say a beginning driver and her passenger uh, got out just after, just in time after she got stuck trying to turn around on a railroad crossing. Oh. We, we had a story earlier, I think this week or late last week, of a car that got flipped yes. over on its lid. Yeah. And then they got out just in time as the train took the car. I guess the train the train missed the car barely. It wasn't quite on the tracks, but it was kind of scary yeah. for them. This car stuck right across the tracks. They uh, couldn't, they're trying to do a U-turn and got stuck. <laughs> and uh, they got out just in time. An Amtrak train carrying 400 passengers sliced the car in two. And the wreckage caught fire and was dragged down the tracks early Sunday morning. No one was seriously injured, though. One train passenger was hospitalized with an asthma attack. Oh, dear. The but driver- it didn't derail or anything. No, like no, no. Okay, the good, driver good. in her 20s faces misdemeanor charges of driving under the influence and violating <laughs> a beginner's permit. According to a statement from the city, the damage to the train will cost $100,000 to fix. The passenger in the car does not face charges. Driver does. And uh, I was more concerned what, what kind of car it was because it just said a car. Oh yeah, was this a car, an SUV, a truck? It was a Chevy Impala. Oh no, yeah, that's not the the smallest car, but it's Uh-oh. not the biggest thing either. But it cut the thing in half, and the pictures showed it was there were so two you, pieces of the car. How You're did telling- the rumor about a penny being able to derail a train yeah. get any traction when a Chevy Impala can? The Chevy Impala didn't do it. So you can do pennies all you want. Mm-hmm. You're telling me there was alcohol involved in this it just says impaired it does not wow. tell you what they were impaired by okay could be their cell phone maybe they had like a pencil pencil through their hand could or something. be who knows but yeah the car got That's cut in impaled half. Oh, not right. impaired yeah there we go there we go there we go yeah. uh hackers demanding millions of dollars in ransom have released more stolen hbo files just a week after threatening the pay tv channel with a drop of Multiple unreleased shows and scripts online. The latest uh, data dump, they're saying, includes scripts for this season's first four episodes of Game of Thrones, as well as the script for the unreleased fifth episode. So if you want some spoilers, that could be out there. Accompanying the data dump is a ransom demand for $6 million in bitcoins and the message HBO is falling. The hackers identified themselves only as Mr. Smith and also realized, uh, released internal documents including financial balance sheets, employment agreements, and what they say is a month's worth of emails from the account of Leslie Cohen, HBO's vice president for film programming. Whoa. See, that's a big deal because, you know, if it was a show that people didn't really care about or a Netflix show where you can't really see how many people are watching it so you don't really know. Hmm. But HBO, Game of Thrones, that gets 10-plus million viewers every episode. So that's a big deal. A lot of people, a lot of money. And uh, the internal documents are interesting because that's how they 
discuss how we pay for things, how we pay people, what right. we think of individuals, the, their private conversations. Uh, Sony had a similar problem a couple of years ago. It's how we know that Sony doesn't like Adam Sandler mm-hmm. and how Adam Sandler just tries to get all his friends' jobs. That's pretty much what Adam Sandler did at yeah. Sony. And then they put out you know low-quality, low-budget movies that made yeah. money for Sony. He's still doing that, you know, even if it's not a Sony picture. So it's just interesting that the the stuff that came out of that, and it's 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 fun, I guess, on an individual level as you're looking at it, and like, oh, so much interesting stuff. But at yeah. the same time, it's bad because then how does business happen if you can't have an open conversation? Yeah. So you know, I'm not. Oh, go ahead, Cole. What if our BYU radio internal documents got released? We'd find out what Dr. Matt really thinks about mm. each You know, I'm not going to lie. If I had a friend that was super wealthy and wanted to pay me to be in a movie and go vacation in Hawaii, mm. I would take him up on it. Probably. Okay. Probably. Right. I'd have, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't even think about it, actually. Sounds like a stretch, but okay. <laughs> Finally, NASA is extremely interested in building a true asteroid defense network that could spring into action as soon as a threat is detected, destroying or diverting a space rock before it can do any serious damage here on Earth. The actual development of of a protection system is still in its infancy, with many proposed plans for dealing with troublesome asteroids, but no real-world testing to back any of them up. But that won't stop NASA from testing its detection capabilities during an upcoming near-Earth asteroid flyby in October. Hmm. October twelfth to be the fa- be uh, specific. The asteroid is named twenty twelve TC four. Whoa! They don't really have a lot of unique names. They're yeah. just numbers and codes and stuff. So it's hmm. not really as interesting. But TC four sounds doesn't even sound menacing at all. But it could be. It says it's coming incredibly close to our planet. This would be on October twelfth. At its nearest point, the rock is expected to be as close as four thousand two hundred miles from our planet. Compared that with the moon's orbit around 240,000 miles away. Scary. So 4,000 miles away. And uh, so you're looking at this rock flying by. So they're going to they're, they're, they're gonna kick their asteroid detecting capabilities yeah. into high gear. And they're going to, they're using it as a guinea pig, which will require the cooperation of many scientists and an obser- observation acting, excuse me, observatories acting in concert to establish the asteroid's exact path. So the whole program right now is just to look at the asteroid and predict where it's going and see if they're accurate with their prediction. I, I will agree with you. They need to do something about that name. My vote is for Rocky McRockface. There you go. They, they should, should open o- it up. Open it to the public. That yeah. always ends up well. Yeah. It says, this is a team that effort that involves more than a dozen observatories, universities, and labs across the globe so we can collectively learn the strengths and limitations of our near-Earth object observation capabilities, says the head of the whatever program this is. The goal of the TC4 campaign is to recover, track, and characterize the comet hmm. or the asteroid, whatever it's called. They could, uh, they could sick... Pluto on it. No, the, he's the, surly. The problem I have with all this is there's no plan for destruction. Yeah, we're just looking at this thing. Let's just get out some popcorn and we watch have it. no ability to do anything about the asteroid <laughs> if it's actually coming at us. Yeah, at this point we're simply going to look at it and go, I think it's going here. Oh look, it didn't go there. Oh, I guess we did it wrong, or we did it right, depending on the outcome, right? That's but scary. There's, there's no. Like, there's a show on CBS, I can't even remember the name of it now, Salvation, I think, and it's all about an asteroid is coming right at Earth, hmm. and the government knows about it, and they have some secret plans they're trying to put together, like they're moving all the nation's uh, 
nuclear missiles to Florida. And everyone's like, wait a second. Why are you moving? Oh, it's just, and they're like, it's just common inventory rotation. Really? They're all moving. Everything <laughs> from Montana is moving to Florida. What are you doing? Nothing. Don't worry about it. You know, that kind of thing. Huh. So the show has its faults, but they're trying to build uh, a device that will go up, hit the asteroid, and kind of push it off course so it'll just fly on by. Is the device named Bruce Willis? No, no, okay. not at all. They're not doing it that way. Though that right. would be a, an idea. Let's go up there and blow it up. Let's but. get some oil drillers, a bunch of non-scientists uh-huh. who know nothing about asteroids, yep. and we'll send them up there, and uh, they'll take care of the problem. Right, and there'll be a good soundtrack. It'll be a great, great show. <laughs> Aerosmith. You can't go wrong with Aerosmith. No, I will. But say I that. just I found it disturbing that. Uh, you know, they're, the, the, the article's making it sound really intense, and they're just going to stare at it. Hmm. Draw a line and go, whoops, did we get it right? And then there's no plan for destruction. Like, blow something up. Well, yeah, blow something up when or you're talking let about us name it. planetary defense, something's got to blow up, or there needs to be a laser at least. Well, maybe this is something that— uh, See? It makes it more intense. Maybe this is something our, our guardian of the galaxy can— no, that was that kid from yesterday from NASA. That job again was dealing with sending germs from Earth to space and then <gasps> stopping germs from space That's coming it. to Earth. We infect it. Let's infect the asteroid with a virus. It's a rock. It doesn't have like. Mm-hmm. It's a, doesn't a rock have spores? We can't. Yeah, but they're going to make us sick, not it. Mm. We can't infect a rock. Come on. It worked in Independence Day. Well, that was aliens. Maybe it's allergic to water. Their their shell was kind of like a rock. Well, I guess. Just I wish space was more advanced than it is. It's basically the whole point of that. Well, I think what we learned is all we need to do is send either Bruce Willis or Jeff Goldblum into space. Does Jeff Goldblum need to be piloted by Will Smith or is that optional? Uh, He wasn't piloted by Will Smith in the the unwatchable sequel, Insurgents. I fell asleep. I'm sorry if I offended someone. I don't know if I saw the end of that. Yeah. It was pretty bad. But you got some sleep out of it. Okay, so I want to know, what's something that either one of you have done to, an extreme measure that you've taken to get out of trouble? You guys are squeaky clean, huh? Well, no, I mean, I've I've gotten in trouble, (laughs) but nothing interesting to get out of trouble. I I mean, when I'm younger, there was some, you know, failing lies that I'd said that really weren't well thought out and easily... Sure. Saw, you know, people saw through them and I was yeah. in trouble. So it's like, eh, no, nothing, nothing extreme. So I know this is not exactly an answer to what I just asked, but there was a girl that really liked me, wanted to go out with me on a date, and I wasn't old enough to go on a date. So instead of telling her that, I just ran away. She was approaching me and I turned and ran away from her. And you would think... You know, that's maybe your answer, that maybe this guy isn't interested, doesn't want to go out with me. But no, she ran after me. She ran after me, and uh, I hid in the bushes. She ran up to the bushes and then proceeded to ask me, will you go out with me? Hmm. To which you said yes. To which I said uh, one of the dumbest things I could have said, I would if I could, but I can't, so I won't. I'm sure she wasn't hurt at all by that. <laughs> oh, no, no. She was pretty upset. I don't know that we talked much after that. 
Anyway, well, here's a woman who、uh, did something rather extreme to get out of trouble. A 59-year-old woman from central China transformed her appearance through plastic surgery in order to avoid 3.71 million dollars of personal debts. In a case highlighting the challenges facing China as it tries to establish a credit society, police officers、uh, were reported to be astonished after apprehending the woman who fled after a court in Wuhan ordered her to pay off her debt. The woman also confessed to using other people's identity cards to travel across the country by train. She financed her plastic surgery using borrowed bank cards. Authorities across China are also exploring new ways to crack down on those who do not pay debts. According to state media, one court in eastern China was drawn up a blacklist of defaulters. Anyone who telephones an individual on the blacklist will first be forced to listen to a pre-recorded message saying, "Please urge this person to fulfill their legal obligations." So this kind of reminded me of the film Face Off. You know, she changed her appearance to get out of this debt. Didn't work though. Hmm. It worked in the movie Face Off. They those two were able to fool everybody. They're best friends. Even though I don't understand how changing a face with somebody who's like twice the size as you will fool anyone, because then there's still you know the body fat and all that to be taken into account. It was a movie, Jeff. It was, I well, I don't want to say how much I enjoyed it on the air, but stars Nicolas Cage and John Travolta. Face off. Anyway,、uh, when we return, we're going to be talking about something completely different, as you might hear on Monty Python. And now for something completely different: five ways marriage is harder in 2017, and what you can do about it. We're going to be speaking with Jordan Johnson. Who is a licensed marriage and family therapist and clinical member of the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy? When we return, this is the Matt Townsend Show. You know, it's no secret that marriage looks a lot different today than it has in years past, and、uh, change is inevitable. And as time progresses, each new generation of married couples has a fresh set of distinct challenges and problems to navigate. And with the increasing societal acceptance of cohabitation, out of wedlock births, and single parenting, the institution of marriage has become less important in society's eyes. And we're honored to speak with Jordan Johnson here this morning, who is—he's a licensed marriage and family therapist and clinical clinical member of the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. And、uh, he's worked a lot in D.C. And I'm interested to hear more about your experience and and what you what light you can shed on this interesting topic. Jordan, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for having me on, Jeff. I appreciate. Yeah, and again, I, I'm I'm sure Matt Townsend will want to have you back on the show when he's when he's here because what you're doing is is very similar to what he's been doing. So、um, you were mentioned in this article about five ways marriage is harder in 
And if you take a look at the numbers, it, it kind of suggests that maybe it's it's I don't know if it means that people are having a harder time getting married or if it's just a matter of priorities. Why? Let's start with that, with priorities. Why do you feel like if it is a question of priorities, why do you feel like it's less of a priority for people to be married? That's a great question. I mean, I think today in today's day and age, there, there's the two two aspects of it, like you mentioned, that there's first, it's, you know, people are having a harder time getting married. And then once they're getting married, there's a whole slew of, of challenges that come along with that. Yeah. Where, you know, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit with, you know, communication as well as, you know, just the social media aspect of that. But I think in today's day and age, you know, just the American dream is kind of shifting. You know, it's it's or it's le- at least, you know, getting prolonged or, you know, pushed out further. And so... It's an interesting change, and it's never been this way before. You know, and, and since since we've been tracking the statistics, it's it's never been this high since. You know, yeah, it's pretty wild. Do you think is there a danger from putting off marriage until? Because if you again, if you look at the numbers, people are getting married later and later. Some twenty nine, thirty. What's the danger in, in putting off marriage that long? Yeah, I, and I I tell people this all the time who who interview or ask about this. I I really feel strongly that that the put on putting off of marriage is in some ways good for the individual, mm-hmm. but bad for the marriage. Mm. Where you find that people are finding personal development, they're having opportunities to go travel the world to really uh, improve their career or to you know develop social networks with people that they wouldn't be meeting before, but it's kind of making us a little bit more stuck in our ways. Or Absolutely, right? yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. So um, obviously views of marriage and, and living with each other out of wedlock, it's, it's changed over the years. Yeah. I mean, there used to be so much, there was a, a major stigma to having children out of wedlock mm-hmm. or living together when you're not yeah. married. Yeah. So why do you think that has changed a little bit and do you think do you think there's a danger to our views on how we become lax in in this area do you think there's a danger in that as well you know it's a good question you know some people might argue both sides of the coin mm-hmm. right that people are getting more experience they're knowing what they're getting into but i also think that uh you know just even the statistics show that this is a major trend in 1960 you know, there's only about 400,000, you know, couples that reported cohabitation. And in 2005, it's 4.8 million. Whoa. You know? And so it's a, it's a major trend. And, you know, studies, you're going to find studies on both sides of it saying, you know, it's better for the relationship for people to try it out in a sense. And, you know, but as a therapist who works with couples on a daily basis, I, I think there's I think there's a really there's a key component to commitment and to yeah. people who know that they're in it and they are able to make that uh, <clears throat> make that plunge, and also commit to their partner because there's more, you know, marital, marital satisfaction, and they're kind of more secure in their marriage, and that's what really drives people to to feel positive about their relationship. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point too. I think you're going to get a myriad of responses depending on who you talk to because totally. I mean, this is even without bringing religion into the right. the conversation. Exactly. You know, um, so. What do you think? I mean, you mentioned that it could be dangerous getting married a little later because at least personality-wise or goal-wise, you're you're so set in your ways mm-hmm. that it's harder to be one, for lack of a better term, uh, as a as a couple 
if you're getting married later. What are what are some of the benefits other than, you know, not being so set in your ways? What are some of the other benefits of getting married at an earlier age? Yeah, I just definitely say first off with with the compatibility part of you really have that opportunity to mold and to mm-hmm. form your relationship and to learn those new things that, you know, where if you're on your own, you're you're deciding what foods you like. You're deciding what styles of movies you like. You're deciding, you know, what kind of career you want to pursue, what housing options you like. And, you know, when you're when you're married, though, you you really have that opportunity to form who what's our identity as a couple. Yeah. Um, which has, you know, like we've talked about, can be a double edged sword. Um, but I think for relationships that it has it has a positive impact if people can do that earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So now let's talk a little bit more about what you mentioned earlier about first getting into marriage and then staying in that marriage. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Sure. Sure. I mean, I think that there today, I mean, like we, we, we've looked at the statistics and the, the latest ones, you know, in the article that I think that they, they showed that it was about, you know, the first, the time at first marriage for men is about 29 and a half. Yeah. And it's never been that high. Um, and then for women, it's 27 and a half. And that is just, it's just climbed specifically in the past 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that is creating, a, you know, a, a really, it creates difficulties because people are, I mean, you, you look at the housing market, they're, they're looking at, um, I was reading in, uh, the National Association of Home Builders just came out with a, an article on, um, their plans for, you know, what kinds of housing are we going to be providing? Mm-hmm. If people are marrying later, are they going to go into more co-living opportunities? Are they going to go into more townhomes? Are they looking for a yard? Are they, you know, and it's just changing. Yeah. It's interesting because you hear a lot of the arguments from people who are marrying later that, well, I need to make sure that I'm financially secure. I need right. to make sure that I have X, Y, and Z lined up perfectly. And yeah, I think about my own marriage and some of the most uh, – some of the greatest experiences for my marriage have been from when we've had to work through a very difficult issue together and how much – how grateful I've been that I've actually had somebody there right. that can help me get through that instead of me trying to get through it on my own. Totally. Yeah. Totally. That shared experience of – you know, it's kind of like traveling. You know, when you're traveling on your own, it's nice. But when you have somebody there next to you to share it, it's a whole other experience. It's – yeah, it's, it really it really augments your experience. I think it also uh, you have somebody to help anchor your experiences to, um, not only in just the experiences there, but you have that bond between that person, and so you can always look into their eyes and see, hey, we did this together. And like you said, you know, going through challenges, and you have that support. Yeah, I like that. Let's do this, Jordan. Let's let's take a break. When we return, I want to talk a little bit about social media and also some of the struggles and challenges that couples, regardless of their age, are going through today and what we can do to help solve those problems when we return. This is the Matt, the Matt Townsend Show, and we're speaking with Jordan Johnson, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist and clinical member of the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. You're listening to the Matt Townsend Show here on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143. Welcome. 
Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show here on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143. We're speaking with Jordan Johnson, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist. And uh, Jordan, I'm interested to know, you've I mean, you've worked with a lot of people that are having communication issues and infidelity issues and, and sex addiction. What are what have been some of the most rewarding experiences that you've had in in all the the great experiences that you've had? Yeah, I you know being a therapist is is a privilege. It's really an honor. I mean, because you're you're going on a ride with with couples or individuals and in, in these people who are coming in at their the deepest and darkest times of their life. You know, if they've made it into your office, it's it's because of their on the brink of, you know, of disaster. Yeah. And so um, it's really an honor to be in there and to, and to just be along the ride, specifically with couples who, who it's their first time. I think there's a lot of people who are hesitant to, to come in because they're scared. They think that, you know, you know, if, if we go to counseling, what does that mean about our relationship? You know, what yeah. do we tell our family members? What do we, you know, and so it's just kind of a, it can be stigmatic, you know, have, have a stigma with it. But yeah. Seems like a very rewarding and uh, satisfying profession to just know that you've made a difference in somebody's life and you've given them hope again when a lot of people just feel like there's none left. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that can happen. Wow. Okay. So obviously, you know, getting – we talked a little bit about this, but getting married at a later age can present its own set of problems. But just in general, there are problems that people experience uh, in marriage, and maybe even more so today than in an earlier age. You think about, for example, social media. You, you just picture a couple sitting on the on the bed together, where they're and it used to be maybe the wife was looking at a magazine, the husband was looking at a magazine or a book. Now you've got husband and wife on their phones flipping through Facebook. What kind of problems does social media pose in a marriage these days? Yeah, social media, you know, again, going back to the double-edged sword, I think it's it's really an opportunity for people to connect in some ways, but it's also a connection killer in other ways. Yeah. And so you have people who, you know, are, are able to meet people, whether it's online dating or other opportunities uh, like that, that you, you stay in contact. I mean, a husband goes to work or a wife goes to work and they're, and they're texting their, their spouse. And, you know, that, that wasn't possible during the workday, you know, 20, 40 years ago. Whereas today you can stay in, in touch. But when you come home, it's almost as if we may have lost that art of how do we interact and how do we communicate and to, to do the face-to-face thing, which is yeah. it's a whole other talent. Right? And I mean, to a certain extent, you can kind of understand why it happens. You know, you I'm not saying this is the example uh, in everybody's case, but in my case, you know, my wife is at home. She, uh, her job is, is a homemaker mm-hmm. and taking care of the kids, right. which is so much more difficult than anything I do <laughs> throughout the day. And she's she's tired at the end of the day. So right. I wouldn't you, – you might not blame her for getting on Facebook or just taking time to read her email, you know, instead of leaning over and, and talking to me. Same thing for me. I'm I'm tired of doing the things that, you know, are not as tiring as what my wife does. I <laughs> right. want to make that clear again. But maybe I'm sitting Brownie down right there. Yeah. Like <laughs> maybe I'm sitting down and just vegging out in front of the TV, you know. So mm-hmm. to a certain extent you can understand that. But yeah, it does seem like there are many more ways to just not be involved with your spouse or your partner on a more personal level because of some of these things that, you know, like social media and Wow. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that because I'd say that's one of the most common things that people come in for. 
as they're saying, you know, I come home at the end of the day and what he wants to do is he wants to go jump right on ESPN or I come home at the end of the day and she's just exhausted from taking care of the kids. And what she wants is me to step in. And, and not that that's something that's completely, you know, abnormal or that hasn't been that way in the past, but in today's day and age, our attention can be taken in so many places. Yeah. Whereas before you'd come home and it was, you're just face to face with your kids, with your family or you're with your, your spouse. And today it's, you know, I'm getting bombarded with either work emails, you know, when you're coming home or it's Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or wherever that is. And you um, you really are missing out on that quality face-to-face connection time, yeah. which is so healing. And that's that's the recharging things, right, for, for spouses who have been at home all day or, you know, vice versa. You know, a husband wants to come home or a wife wants to come home and they want to connect and they want to do something different than what their job was. And, and we're there on Facebook. We're watching Netflix next to each other and we're you know, we're coexisting, but we're not connecting. Yeah. And that's, that can be an issue. So I want to ask you this because I, just to give you an example, I was at the park with my family yesterday and we've had family in town for about a month. So we're kind of, we're kind of burnt out. Not that we don't love our family. Obviously we do, but we just need to have some of that alone time. And I found myself being outdoors, which is not something we do a whole lot. And, you know, in the mountains, it's just this beautiful park. And normally I would feel great about this and want to be there, but I just wasn't feeling it. And I found myself really having to push myself to get out of my right. my, my lawn chair and go play with my kids and to, to talk to my relatives. Do you, do you feel like there are times in our marriages where we, we just have to pick ourselves up and do that? And then are there also times where we need to just be alone? How do we find a good balance between the two? That's a great question. That's really, And I think so many people are grappling with that, right, with the quality versus quantity of time. And yeah. how do you spread yourself thin so much? It's, it's just – it's a really tricky thing. I think one of the things that I'll tell couples and I'll really try to encourage them to do as I work with them is, is to have that – you know, there are three things each week that I would recommend. The first is to have, you know, a family night, something where you're dedicated to the whole group. The second is to have a date night, you know, where you're investing in your relationship. Now, are you saying once a week? Once a week. Okay, yes. I'm going to make my wife listen to this. <laughs> once a week. And each each week, uh, it switches the partner, right? So one week, it's your wife who plans it. And next week, it's you. So you can't just Ooh. say we're going to watch Netflix, you know, That's every good. week. because. You got to switch it up. But then after that, the most important one that I think that people are missing out on is what I like to call a relationship inventory. And this I'll recommend for for couples at the you know at the end of the week or at the start of the next week to have just one hour where you're able to, you know, sit and have pillow talk with your wife and to say, hey, honey. Is there something that's come up this week that's bothered you? You know, this is kind of the catch-all. We know that at this point in the week, we're going to be able to address anything that's gone unnoticed. Or did you notice that Timmy had a really hard time at school? You know, what do we want to do with this? Yeah. Because couples just aren't having that bonding time, you know, where you're talking about difficult issues or important issues. But at the same time, you know, sharing experiences together. Yeah. And if they don't feel like they can talk to you, then they might start looking elsewhere to talk to other people, which can be dangerous. That is dangerous. It's a common one. So I want to hear from you what – because it seems like another problem that couples face, and I think we sometimes get caught in this, mainly me, 
But uh, just you're alone, Jeff. I'm yeah, just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I mean in, in my relationship, I'm probably more guilty of this. Is is what I'm saying? Oh, okay. um, just kind of understanding what a date is, because for a lot of people, they think, oh, we we can't really go on on that many dates because we don't have the money, or mm-hmm. we can't find a babysitter. What can a date look like if it's if it's not uh, the typical, we're paying a babysitter, we're going out, we're going to a movie or a dinner. What else can a date look like? Yeah. So for me, the, the key part of a date is having connection time. So anything that you're spending time where you both are investing in each other, you're not investing in your phone, you're not investing in work or whatever, or even the kids. And so it's whether it be a walk, you know, you literally could go for a walk for 15 minutes and feel more rejuvenated, you know, in your day because you had an opportunity to connect with your wife uh, and vice versa, as opposed to planning out, you know, extravagant event where you're going to Lagoon or some some theme park for the whole day just to, right. you know, it's it's about the quality and not necessarily just the quantity. So it could be in the neighborhood. It could be around the house even. I mean, after the kids go to bed. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I mean what, when was the last time you sat out, you know, on the porch and, and looked at the stars and just had a conversation about... What interests you, you know? Well, I'm trying to think of the last time I could be awake long enough for the stars to come out. No, but I know what you mean. I was recently out on our back porch, and it was delightful. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. So um, family night, date night, inventory, at least one hour, um, every, something we need to do every week with our spouse or our partner. You're investing in your relationship. You want that insurance so to make sure that you're not going to end up in my office, right? But if you do, it's okay because we all need a little help from time to time. That's interesting. So in a way, you're kind of like a a police officer. You're glad – we're glad that you're there, but we hope to not – have to see you or to be to be with you when you're working couples it's so funny at the start of the session you know they say well how long is this going to last and i and i look them dead in the eye and i say listen this i i understand that this is a financial burden and this is important but i want you to know i'm in i'm in one of the few professions where my job is to try to get you out of this office as quick as possible yeah i want you to know that i'm going to work to try to do that and my job is not to have you here forever yeah so okay clearly a problem in, that people are having is social media, maybe the lack of communication. You talked a little bit about making sure that you speak with your, your spouse. And then another thing that you that we mentioned during the break is that people are entering these marriages, regardless of what the age is, maybe they're entering a marriage with more baggage. Yeah, yeah. You know, like we talked about the double-edged sword, going back to that, that there's – there, as we said, that there, it can be better for the individual, your experiences, you know, your your career path, all the different things that are augmented by, um, you know, by being able to focus on that instead of a relationship or a marriage. But at the same time, with more experiences comes more negative experiences, right? Bad relationships or, you know, times where your heart's broken or where you have – you know, a number of things that could happen to you as opposed to somebody who gets married at 21, 25, you know, where it had been before that they they have that opportunity to gel and to mold together and to go through those experiences together, which can be bonding times where, you know, somebody else might not have that on their own. So just kind of in closing here, what are some things that we can do today? Because we talked about obviously getting into the marriage as the goal and maybe not waiting so long. (laughs) Uh, But then also, obviously... If you're going to get married, you want to stay married. Yeah. So what is something that couples can do today to make sure that they're giving their relationship, uh, making it a priority again? Yeah, yeah. 
it's key. That's a key thing. It's, I love what you said. It's making it a priority. And I, I'd say the number one piece of advice is, is one is – I give you two pieces at least. One is, is that give your partner the benefit of the doubt. They're on your team. You know, look at them as a partner and not as somebody who's, you know, an opponent or somebody that, you know, you're trying to work with and or it's really hard. Look at them as a teammate and to give them the benefit of the doubt when things happen um, and phrase your, your experiences that way. And second is, is live as if you have arrived, right? A lot of times we think that, oh, when I get that job, when I get married or when we have right. enough money or we have a house, nothing's stopping you right now from living as if, you, if you've as if you've arrived. And so it just hmm. really shifts your perspective as into I'm living in the moment. I'm cherishing these experiences. Um, does that make sense? Oh yeah, absolutely. And that's great advice. Yeah. Act it's it's kind of a a uh, a mindset change. Mm-hmm. That's great. Totally. Well, Jordan Johnson, we really appreciate you coming in here on the show today. And again, we'll we'll have Matt Townsend call you back here, and we'll we'll get you on again. Oh, thanks. Because we've enjoyed talking to you about getting married and then making sure that we stay married. His name is Jordan Johnson, and he is a licensed marriage and family therapist. And uh, again, we'll have Matt Townsend call you back so you can. Share more advice, more tips with us, and that's what we strive to do here on the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, It's BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Joined here with uh, Cole Wissinger, who is running the board and is our color commentator as well. You're filling in for Matt. I'm filling in for you. That's right. He's got to get done. Yeah, and he's going to be back with us on Friday, including our third hour of the show, which will be screen cleaning, which you can hear every Friday at 9 a.m. Mountain Time, 11 a.m. Eastern here on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143. And I'm super excited for that show, by the way, because we're going to be speaking with Neil Harmon, who is the CEO of VidAngel. And uh, if you're not familiar with VidAngel, you're definitely going to want to listen in on that because it's a company that is interested in helping your family view content that is filtered and appropriate for all ages and where you can actually pick and choose what you want to see in an episode of a television show, a comedy special, or even a movie. So we're super excited about that. And I'm hoping to give him a list of shows and movies that he can create some filters for. Because I have a lot of TV shows and movies to watch. Unfortunately, no time to watch them. Anyway, we continue to celebrate Bowling Day and Happiness Happens Day and I'm I'm guessing that this the subject of this next story is not bowling and is probably not happy at the moment because U.S. Marshals uh, found a New Hampshire fugitive of the week tanning in a family member's backyard in Massachusetts, and they of course arrested her. The U.S. Marshals Fugitive Task Force featured 35-year-old Amy Beth Tremblay in local media in New Hampshire on July 12th, and an arrest warrant had been issued for her in March on bail violations following a drug conspiracy charge. 
The task force said Wednesday that tipsters reported seeing Tremblay sunning herself in a yard. They showed up and arrested her. And in this case, bad girls, bad girls. Anyway, how freaky would that be? You're sitting in the tanning salon. You've got either the cucumbers on your eyes or those little swim goggles. And uh, somebody shows up and arrests you. Oh, that would be awkward. The worst end to a relaxation. Have you ever been tanning? No. <laughs> and, 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 well, at least you wouldn't admit it, right? I came back with a little sun. I was out in the Utah desert this weekend. And really? got burned. Does that count as tanning? I got a little burned changing the sprinkler heads in my front yard. Uh, I did it once when I was a teenager and was going on a houseboat trip. <laughs> so... Yeah, not the – it's probably – it's not for me. What about the oil so. stuff that you put on just makes you look golden brown without actually attaining any kind of permanent tan? I've, I've never done that actually mm-hmm. and I've been to a tanning bed once. But that's it. I just want people to accept me for who I am. There you go. And you're great as who you are, Jeffrey. Thank you. That was my Kiefer Sutherland thank you by the way. It's kind of a whisper growl. Thank you. Anyway, uh, here's another story. Uh, This is kind of my nightmare, actually. An Ohio woman called 911 in a panic with ample reason. A five and a half foot long boa constrictor she had rescued a day earlier had wrapped itself around her neck, was biting her face and wouldn't let go. Oh, no. Yeah. Please hurry, the frightened woman told the dispatcher. He's biting my nose. The dispatcher sent firefighters and police to the woman's house. Rescuers arrived within minutes and found the woman lying in the bloodied driveway of her home. This this is horrible. Do you read these stories before we uh, start talking about them, Jeffrey? Why? Why? You don't you don't think I read it before? The snake was uh, was holding tight just as she described a firefighter cut off oh my cut off the snake's head with a pocket knife that's an a, intense firefighter that's an intense pocket knife too and the 45 year old woman who was who hasn't been identified was taken by ambulance to a hospital for treatment the woman told the dispatcher during the call she had rescued two boa constrictors on Wednesday and that she owned nine ball pythons so you reckon Sam Jackson Sheesh. is going to be signing on for snakes on your face anytime soon? Snakes on your face? Maybe he's done uh, snakes on a plane. And then at least on this show, we've played trailers for uh, snakes in a toilet, snakes in a bed. Uh, we've even done babies in a lobby, mm-hmm. in a hospital lobby. Oh, oh and there was uh, snakes, snakes at JFK. Snakes in your JF- car? Was it? With snakes in a car mm-hmm. and there was snakes at JFK. Okay. In a snakes, snakes in a JFK mailroom. Oh. It's very specific. Yes. Um, wow. See, yeah. Anything that uh, can eat me or crush me to death, that frightens me. That is a fair fear to have. Yes. No it's one's, just no one's going to so... fault you for that. Like irrational fear, fears like clowns that we can laugh at each other for having. Yeah. But being afraid of a thing that can literally latch onto you and kill you. It's unnatural is what it is. Yeah. Fish should not be eating me. Correct. Reptiles should not be 
chomping on me. Let this be a lesson to all those of you who save boa constrictors and keep them around in your home. Yeah. They might eat you. And snakes should not be biting my face. Correct. Yeah, and look at the thanks that this woman got for rescuing a boa constrictor. (laughs) Thanks. Yeah, thanks for rescuing me. I'm going to bite your face off now. I think there are professionals that rescue boa constrictors. If I see a boa constrictor in need of rescue, my first instinct is going to be to call the people that rescue boa constrictors, not to try to take on this humanitarian task myself. My father-in-law, bless him, uh, showed up to uh, wrangle a boa constrictor at somebody's house, a church friend. Aw. And uh, I certainly never would have done that. What a neighborly fella. Exactly what you said to do. Just call the professionals. There are people who handle this sort of thing. They get paid to do it and who are not terrified to death of it. Anyway, fears of animals that can eat you. Very real here on The Matt Townsend Show. When we return, we will be continuing on with the fun and helping you be more informed on The Matt Townsend Show, Sirius XM 143, BYU Radio. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome to The Matt Townsend Show. This is hour number three on here on BYU Radio Sirius XM 143. We are Dr. Mattless today, but that's okay. I'm Jeff Simpson filling in for him today. I'm here with Terry South, our producer, and Cole Wissinger, who is running the board and is offering color comments. Isn't that right, Cole? Colorful comments. Colorful sometimes. comments. Okay. And uh, Matt's going to be sorry that he missed today because we continue the celebration of Bowling Day. I want to hear the sound that is made when Cole bowls. That's what he's hoping for. He's hoping to get his game up above 200. He's taking a bowling class here pretty soon. Doesn't have to get up until 12 o'clock noon, you lucky dog. Every Tuesday and Thursday. That's like, that's a totally different life. This is my last semester of college. I figure that after three hard years here, uh, another year at another university, I have finally earned the right to relax while getting some credits. (laughs) Well, I hope you break that 200. I hope you get at least a turkey. That is an exciting day when you can bowl three strikes in a row. Did you know that uh, bowling is one of the world's most popular participation sports? I wasn't aware. It's got around 100 million enthusiasts. The sport. (laughs) What what does it qualify to be an enthusiast, Jeff? Um, You could watch it on TV. Okay. I would think that makes you an enthusiast. The sport may be, or may date back to ancient Egyptian times, as primitive bowls uh, bowls have been found in graves from around 5000 BC. Much later, Henry VIII was a keen bowler, but banned working men from taking part in case they neglected their duties. Uh, the Flintstones bowled. Their Flintstones right up there with Henry VIII and great historical figures. Imagine trying to bowl a turkey with one of those uneven rocky balls, though. 
that well as long as you get up on your tiptoes before you do it you'll be fine i would have used the brontosaurus neck ramp Mm. to go down the lane well, they have those at some for the little kids where you just have the little ramp. That's true. Doohickus. Little dinosaur thingy, yeah. You set it up on top and you give it a push. So we're still bowling the same way as Fred Flintstone. Yep. Sometimes the rocks, too, are, they might as well be Fred Flintstone's ball because – or the the balls might – it might as well be Fred Flintstone's rocks because they're all chipped up and uneven and – Yeah. Well, I think that that's what it takes to be an enthusiast. You have to buy your own shoes. You have to have your own polished ball that you bring in a little ball bag special for your bowling enthusiastic participation. The whole shoe thing is a, just a big scam anyway. That's why you buy your own shoes? No, I just mean having you have to have your own sh- you have to have special shoes to bowl. Yes. To step on that fancy lane? Definitely. Yeah. Anyway, so it's bowling day. We wish Cole good luck in his bowling class. I think you have to bowl a 200 to pass the class. I think you have to show up (laughs) to pass the class. It is also happiness happens day. So, uh, you know, it happens occasionally. Be happy. Hopefully it happens to you today as well. Later on in the program, we're going to be speaking with Nathan Fisk about screen time. Are your kids getting too much screen time? And it, what is screen time really? And is it more about – is it more than just setting limits for your children and for yourself really? And then, of course, we will end the program by speaking with Spencer and Jerem. We'll see what's coming up on their program here at 10 o'clock Mountain Time or noon Eastern Time. But the first thing we want to do is we want to head over to Terry South and see what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry? The United States and the Philippines are considering an agreement that would allow the U.S. to conduct airstrikes against ISIS-aligned militants in the country's southern islands. Ah. This is according to NBC News. The plan reportedly allowed the U.S. to conduct strikes mostly by drones in the southern regions where Philippine President uh, Rodrigo Duterte has declared martial law. Visiting Duterte, Duterte, I can't say his name, in Manila on Monday, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson said the U.S. was already providing the Philippines with military support in the form of intelligence capabilities, planes, and drones. So... Just, you know, expanding it to other parts of the world now. In the wake of two deadly aviation crashes in the last month, the Marine Corps is considering grounding all Marine fixed-wing and rotary aircraft for a day to reinforce proper procedures among pilots and air crews. According to a defense official, the stand-down could come uh, as early as today. The defense official said the 24-hour stand-down would affect all Marine flying squadrons worldwide and would reinforce proper flight training procedures for Marine pilots and air crews. The possibility of grounding comes a day after three Marines died when an Osprey crashed into the waters off the coast of Australia as it was attempting to land on an amphibious ship. I'm surprised it's only a day, but I guess it's good that they, they feel like they well, only need a day to do 24 hours, do some quick refresh. Maybe someone's cutting a corner here or there. Yeah. But uh, yeah, the in Australia where they, they, I guess, missed the landing spot on the ship and Ooh. fell off the side so that's great yeah take so a day see what happens um uh, this is something i found last night facebook is testing a new feature that inserts posts from local politicians into users news feeds no even if they don't necessarily follow those politicians no yeah the new feature included <laughs> included a label titled this week in your government a Facebook spokesperson confirmed that the feature was just a test. We're testing a new civic engagement feature that shows people on Facebook the top posts from their elected officials. 
Uh, our goal is to give people a simple way to learn about what's happening on all levels of government. The feature will appear at most once per week and only for users who follow at least one local, state, or federal representative in their area. So I'm safe. Okay. I don't follow any of that, so we're good. <laughs> so should you be forcing people to be to realize their civic duties a little more? That's the question. Mm. Facebook knows uh, who your local reps are if you handed over your address to uh, use the company's voting plan feature or its town hall feature, which helps people find and follow their elected officials. There's one point I saw they put a post up like, put your address in, we'll tell you who you're voting for. Interesting. Right? So you put your address in, it does a search and throws up your mayor and city council and all those types of people that you may or may not be voting for. Oh, I thought you meant like, you will vote for this person. No, 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 no. <laughs> they're, they're trying to show you and remind you to go vote. Here are the options in your area. Right. You know, everyone's yeah. ballot's different depending on where you live. And uh, so they did that so that you would know, because, you know, your city council is probably the most important thing in your your when in your life when it comes to politics, when it deals yeah. with taxes and trash collection and those kinds of things. Whereas we all focus on what's happening in Washington, D.C., and a lot of that doesn't matter as much as, like, your city council, and no one knows who's on their city council. See, to me, what's so more, so much more effective, which is something happened in my neighborhood, our mayor was going door-to-door talking to people. Right. He's, I mean, if you're that dedicated and you can, you can do it and you physically, and if you've got the time, then I say go for it. I, I would vote for that person over somebody that's putting a post on my Facebook account. Right. So, so Facebook, if you've entered into their town hall feature or these other ones where they, they kind of have some information on you and can send you that information about your local officials, you may see that. Otherwise, you'll see posts from your uh, politicians at the state and federal levels. They'll just drop those into the feed. Politi- politically, if po- a political affiliation is not used to determine what you see. Instead, Facebook will surface whatever posts have been the highest engagement regardless of political party uh, for you know politicians – that affect yeah. you. By the way, any reason we don't see uh, pictures on the ballots of the people that are running? It is might, it ink? It might be, <laughs> it might be cost because yeah. graphics are difficult. It might also be uh, maybe there's some sort of bias when it comes to you're just voting on how someone looks rather than what their what their what their you know what their positions are on certain issues. I guess that's why. Uh, Nixon lost that election versus Kennedy when they had that TV debate. There's there's a lot of uh, data that, that that's been researched quite a bit, and yeah, yeah Kennedy looked like a he looked good. He was a good looking individual versus Nixon, who wasn't, and or in comparison to Kennedy, right? So he yeah. lost out, and they'll find that whoever has the the nice head of hair, that's the person that gets gets votes because there's people that go, wow, that guy, that's a good looking man. We'll vote for that. You know? Yeah. But just imagine voting for somebody you can't see their picture on the ballot, and then you they get up on the TV and you're like, "Oh, I voted for that guy." Yeah. <laughs> they're like, "What?" <laughs> we make very superficial judgments, right? And that comes. I mean, it's we, we, we've had people on the show in the past that talked about like uh, height, how tall someone is, and how that goes into people, how people vote, and just how you present yourself when you walk in a room. You haven't said a word, yeah. and so everyone makes that judgment just looking at you. They're like, "Oh, there's a president. Eh, he doesn't look presidential." Because yeah. he doesn't have the right hairdo or a suit's a little rumpled or something. It's unfortunate. Finally, have you heard of YouTube Red? Yes. It is a pay service from YouTube. They have TV shows on there, that, mm-hmm. their own content they've created. It's also a way so you can watch YouTube videos without commercials. Ooh, which people find, interesting. Are you willing to pay for that? There's just I don't, I'm not sure of the details, but that's kind of what it works. So YouTube Red outbid Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, and AMC for the rights to Cobra Kai. 
a Karate Kid sequel series set 30 years after the events of the original movie. I read this. It was was very interested by this. So it says the half-hour comedy series centered on the relationship between the film's teenage hero and villain, Danny LaRusso, who's Ralph Macchio, and Johnny Lawrence, who uh, I guess he was the blonde kid in the first movie. Yeah. He goes, put him in a body bag, Johnny, is what, you know, that's what they screamed at him, right? Sweep the lick, all that. Sweep the leg. So the blonde kid that he fought in the in the, the, the final match at the karate tournament, those two guys are going to open competing karate schools. It'll be written by the guys who wrote Hot Tub Time Machine, which is a comedy, right? And That's uh, debatable. Yeah, well, that's the idea. So just... It says Cobra Kai will be true to uh, true continuation of the original film, packed with comedy, heart, and thrilling fight scenes with two guys that are super old as the heads of these two, uh, whatever. Um, so this is going to be where the original cast is going to be the adults, and there will probably be a new cast of kids I in the karate they, schools. Right? I hope they get Elizabeth Shue to come back. No she's, word the on gra- that. she's the greatest. It does not say that here if it will be or not. So I was interested to know that it was going to be a comedy because I know yeah. that the original movie was funny, but maybe not in the ways that they had hoped. Yeah, they were trying. They were making a drama. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and that's that's again. You take these shows and movies and TV shows from the eighties. You bring them to now, and they have to make it a comedy because you can't. If you go serious with it, it's not going to work. Like chips. Yeah. And Baywatch, they came back as comedies. But both of those completely fl- – well, Baywatch didn't flop as much as Chips did. So 21 you- Jump Street is your successful example. That's that. right. Yeah. Where, where the show, 21 Jump Street, I watched that as a mm-hmm. kid and I, I – it was okay. It wasn't like the greatest thing. But the idea of you had cops posing as kids in high school breaking yeah. up crime. And it was like, oh, that's kind of an interesting approach. So, so you watched it. So. Do you think this has legs? No. <laughs> I think it's on YouTube Red, and no one has that, and so it'll I'm, be there, but no one will know it exists. I'm I I think it's interesting, but that, as an idea, would that exist if it was on like a, a regularly accessible TV network? I don't think so, because probably I, not. I think like the first episode, people tune in out of curiosity, yeah, and nostalgia, yeah, and the same yeah. as Fuller House, the same as Girl Meets but World, Fuller House is doing as, quite well. I think but, that I think that did well because you could sit down and watch it all on Netflix. You yeah. could binge the entire season and then and just I don't wash know, wash your hands of it. Yeah, then you're like, oh, I'm done, right? <laughs> Whereas this one, I don't know if they're going to put the whole thing out at once or if they're going to okay. put it out once a week. If it goes once a week, I think it won't be successful. See, to me, if I were the creators of that show and I wanted a lot of people to see it, I would have taken. It says that there was a bidding war with all these other right. services. I would have taken less money and gone to Netflix or Amazon Prime. Right. That's just me. Or, or AMC. AMC was yeah. bidding for it also. Yeah. So you could put it somewhere yeah, where- YouTube Red? Hmm. Yeah. But, I mean, you, all these networks are trying to drag people. Like CBS has a new Star Trek that's coming out this fall. Star yes. Trek, I forget Discovery. the- Discovery. Discovery. They're going to air one episode- on over-the-air CBS, and then the rest of it's going to go onto their streaming network. So if you want to see the rest is of the like series, all access, is that what it's called? CBS or? All Access, and it'll yeah. also be available on Netflix, but not in the U.S. Yeah. So this oh, is the I hate first. When they do that. This is the first time I've seen that Netflix is taking something week to week, like Hulu used to do. Yeah. Um, Netflix in other countries, you'll see it week to week as Star Trek Discovery is coming out. But here in the U.S., you have to be a paid subscriber to the specific CBS All Access. So I want to get your opinion on this, you guys. Do you feel like now that all these other shows have this pressure to 
release all of the episodes at once because we're very much in a binge watch society. Do you think people are I mean, do you think that trend is going to change? Do you think people are always going to binge watch TV from now on or do you think their tastes and uh, habits are going to change? I think there's a large enough portion of the viewing audience who wants that. Really? And that, it depends that, on your content, too. Yeah. A show like Lost is really bingeable because yeah. every single episode leaves you on a cliffhanger and you want to see what the next one is as opposed to just your generic comedies like I'm sure this weird Karate Kid Cobra Kai mm-hmm. thing is where the the last episode has nothing to do with the next one. And Star Trek was very, really synonymous with this kind of thing. Each episode was its own individual thing. It didn't matter if you didn't remember what happened last week because they're on a new adventure in a new star system this week. Right. So you're saying cram as many of those episodes down their throat before they realize what they've swallowed. Well, the <laughs> Fuller House, people watched that in a weekend and yeah. then talked about how bad it was. I yeah. saw so many people talking about how bad it was, but they watched every single episode, right? So yeah. I, I think that's – those types of shows because they're like 20 minutes. If it's a half hour, they usually – if it's a half hour on, on broadcast TV, it's about 20 minutes when you cut out the commercials. Yeah. So if you make it at 30 minutes, it's easily – you can just watch that pretty quick because you, you start whipping through episodes and you've lost an entire weekend. Where yeah. if it's an hour, it takes more time. And it feels like it's taking more time. This, uh, if you remember, there was a show, Community, that was on NBC. Mm -hmm. It did well, and then it was canceled. Mm -hmm. And then people wanted it back, so Yahoo picked it up and puts it on their streaming service. Yahoo Screen. Yeah, they put it out, and a lot of people were like, what is that? But they had their own service, so they purchased it and put it out, and they put out one episode a week. So what people did was they watched the first one, went, oh, and they go, oh, this is going to come out once a week. I'll just wait till there's more episodes. And by the time they waited till there was more episodes, they never went back to it because they'd lost whatever memory of what Yahoo screen was, this random app they had. And and it's it's this idea you need to jump on on it when it's hot. And when it comes out that first week, that's when they need to have every episode there. Again, I don't know if they're doing that or not, but they could in the sense of trying to bring you back more and more. So I don't know if that if this is that type of show, you know, it, it needs to be really compelling to bring someone back next week. Hmm. If it's not that compelling, but it's just sort of nostalgic, maybe dump all the episodes at the same time. Bring them all out. Just let well, everyone take them all in. One thing that they won't be able to do is bring back Pat Morita. No. Mr. Aww. Miyagi, who passed away. Anyway, I'm going to call it here and now. I am predicting that... There's going to be a change of television consumption habits. I don't think people will always be binge watchers. I think there will be a group of people that will always be binge watchers, but I don't I have no idea. I'm not saying what the next big TV viewing habit will be, but I'm just going to predict that there won't be as much emphasis on binging. Again, I can't see far enough to know what that would be. But my crystal ball is telling me that things will change. Too much screen time. Yes. Screen time. That's what we're talking about, uh, talking about next when we return here on the Matt Townsend Show. We're speaking with Nathan Fisk. about. It's more about setting limits when it comes to screen time. This is BYU Radio Sirius XM 143 on the Matt Townsend Show.
Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show here on BYU Radio Sirius XM 143. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, who's away today. You know, a lot of parents are concerned about how much screen time their children get, and they would like to know how much is too much. In 2015, the average teenager spent 391 minutes, that's well over six hours, in front of the screen per day. Nathan Fisk, assistant professor of cybersecurity education at the University of South Florida, has found that if you already care enough to be worried about digital media, you're probably already doing enough to protect your kids. He is with us this morning to explain how screen time is more than just setting limits. Nathan, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hi, Jeff. Glad to be here. I'm really grateful to have you here, too, because I've got two young children, and, uh, you know, I'm not home enough to, to monitor how much screen time my kids are getting. That's, that's my wife's department. But I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, not going to lie, I, there are times when I worry, you know, maybe they're getting way too much screen time, but maybe I, I could do better to understand what exactly screen time is and, and whether or not there's a hard and fast rule when it comes to screen time. Well, so, I mean, you're just like many of the other parents out there today, and there's so much media out there that can be really complicated, right? And so that's the, that's the real grab of the idea of screen time, is that there's just this hard and fast, easy rule that you can just take it away, and that's, that's the end of it. But unfortunately, the idea of screen time really hasn't aged well, particularly with the diversity of media that kids have access to. And so... There's a lot of really positive experiences out there that kids are engaging with. So, so it doesn't really help to just take it away. And even beyond that, there's a lot more when it comes to the kinds of social interactions that they're engaged in, the friendships that they're making, the things that they're learning online. So screen time, just simply in a matter of how much time the kids spend, isn't always the best measure or the best way to regulate what kids are doing online. Yeah, and I think also that there is a misunderstanding when it comes to screen time because, you know, I, I in the intro I mentioned that uh, the average teenager is spending well over six hours in front of a screen per day. And to me, you know, I read that and I think, I can't even imagine watching six hours of television, but it's not just television. You know, we're looking at our phones, we're doing things on the computer, we're doing assignments, things like that. So that, that also goes into screen time as well. Right, and that's not just kids, that's, that's adults. So look at the yeah. amount of time that you spend in front of a screen these days, and it's, it's comparable. And kids are doing the same things that adults are doing, and so it's primarily hanging out with friends, it's doing research for their projects. And, and the flip side of this is, too, is that if you actually look at the studies of where kids are, have been allowed to go on their own without adult supervision, um, that's actually been shrinking year on year, generation on generation. And so one of the arguments I tend to make is that, well, of course kids are going to branch out online to do this kind of hanging out that every generation has always done. Um, so they're going to spend more and more time online as their their outside lives are restricted more and more. And just to be clear, it's really, really difficult to disentangle online and offline lives, especially for kids these days, because, again, they're doing all of these things with an online component. So it's not that they're missing out on other kinds of social engagement. It's that often these kinds of online social engagement, mediated social engagement, can actually strengthen offline relationships, which they have every day just like the rest of us. That's really interesting. So, yeah, let's talk a little bit more about some of the other benefits to screen time for these uh, these young people and for adults, too. 
Sure. Before I get there, I just really want to be clear. Again, the idea of screen time itself is super problematic. So it's not that all screen time is going to be great. Like I mentioned in my article, you know, an hour reading hate speech is way different than an hour playing right. games with friends. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so, so there are, but again, most kids aren't engaged with that kind of stuff. They're doing the kinds of everyday things that most people would expect. But again, having access to all of this information allows for kids to really get into peer-based and interest-driven learning. Uh, it helps them build social connections, especially for kids who are already kind of lonely or have other kinds of social problems. It allows them to find peer groups online and, and build those kinds of relationships. And even forms of gaming can help kids develop leadership skills and think through more complex problems in ways that, you know, sometimes kids don't have access to it um, in their offline lives. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I know that uh, in this article and, and even in this interview, you've been very positive. This has had a very positive light to it. I'm interested to know how, because you mentioned that it uh, having this interaction online can actually strengthen their offline relationships. Sure. Now, how can you strike a good balance to where you don't have a child that is addicted to the television or addicted to their phone or addicted to the Internet? Right. How do you strike a good balance there? So, again, parents really need to have strong relationships with their children in the first place. And that's going to, that's going to help more than just about anything else, any of these other hard and fast rules. If, if you know your kid, you're going to know when they're spending too much online, when they're disengaging when they're not happy, when they're generally having a problem. And sometimes that's not really about the technology as much as it is their everyday lives. So, so oftentimes we see these kinds of problematic media use when kids are facing other larger problems in their everyday lives. And so a parent who has a stronger relationship with their kids and really is, has a good understanding of how they are every day, what they're up to, and how happy they are, is going to be able to get out ahead of that problematic media use much more quickly. Uh, even beyond that, we really suggest that parents think about things in terms of, and this is, you know, for those of us who are doing research in the field, this approach developed by Sonia Livingstone and Alicia Bloom-Ross, the London School of Economics, that parents focus on content, context, and communication. Really, the, just the three questions of what kinds of media are kids engaging with, uh, why are they engaging with those forms of media, and who are they establishing connections with, if anyone, online? And so that gives you a little bit more of a nuanced understanding of the kinds of risks and issues that your kids might be facing. Interesting. So, okay, so you said content, context, and communication. Or connections, excuse me. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. So, oh my goodness, that is so great. Um Okay, let's do this. I want to take a break, and when we come back, I was hoping that we could talk a little bit more about how we can help our children and really ourselves keep this screen time to a healthy level, and then also just some more on uh, developing and improving these relationships with our children. We're speaking with uh, Nathan Fisk, who is an assistant professor of cybersecurity education in the University of South Florida College of Education, and we're talking screen time and how it's more about than just setting limits. This is the Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143. 
Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show here on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143. We're speaking with Nathan Fisk, who is an assistant professor of cybersecurity education in the University of South Florida College of Education and the community and outreach liaison for the Florida Center for Cybersecurity. And I wish Nathan was here to... uh, help give me some more ideas on how I could actually get some more screen time. I don't feel like I get to watch as much TV as I'd like, but uh, we're actually speaking about screen time in general and and how it's more than just setting limits and how we can uh, understand that better. Nathan, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you. So um, I want to talk a little bit more. You you mentioned uh, a little bit in the, in the first segment about how... Really, screen time is more than just setting limits and and not having this hard and fast rule, but it's making sure also that we have good relationships with our children. And I was hoping that you could share some more ideas with us on on how to keep the screen time to a healthy level for our children. Sure. So, again, before the break, I mentioned really focusing on the content, context, and connections that different kinds of media engagement can bring to a child's life. And that's not always easy for parents to do on their own. And really, even when we're thinking about the amount of time that kids are spending with media, we want to focus on, you know, what kinds of time they're spending online. Is it quality time or not? So those three kind of axes will help parents do that. But again, it's very complicated. And I would, I would say that the best way to go about doing that, to talking about how long kids should be spending online is really done in conversation with your kids themselves. So the first step is sitting down with your kids, asking them about their media practices, and then thinking through the kinds of risks that they face and how long that they should be allowed to spend uh, in any given activity. But again, that's really not about time all by itself. It's, It's much more about the content, context, and connections that those kinds of media experiences provide. And by helping kids figure those things out with you, you, you'll end up learning more about what they're doing, why they're doing it, and and how that actually comprises part of their everyday life. So what would would some of those questions look like when we're sitting down with our kids trying to have this conversation with them? Well, it's just simply a question of, you know, so what do you do every day online? Uh, if there's a social media application that they happen to show you, like ask them, ask them how it works and what they're doing there. Uh, if it's a game, try playing the game with them. They're often multiplayer games. Uh, if it's a forum that they really like, ask more about what it is that they're doing there. If it's material that they're reading online, ask them, well, what makes you interested about this particular? Um, so by engaging in those kinds of questions, you'll learn more about what might appear to you as a much more complicated media landscape. In the same way that you, you know, your children might not know what you're doing online, you could help them understand. They can help you understand what they're doing online. You know, that's such great advice because even outside of just understanding or, or knowing how your kids are spending their time and whether or not that's safe – it also shows that you're taking an interest in something that is important to them. I've got two young daughters, and every time I say, let's go jump on the trampoline or let's do such and such an activity, something that they're very interested in doing, they just get so excited that they throw their arms around me and they say, Daddy, I love you. <laughs> so I probably ought to do more more of that. 
Exactly. And that provides kids with real opportunities to show you that they have some level of expertise. And, and often kids are really looking for those kinds of experiences. It can only be better when it's with a parent. Yeah. So, you know, clearly, I know a lot of parents struggle with seeing their kids spending what they they feel like is way too much time on their phone to the point where they just can't put it down. You know, they're at the dinner table and they can't put mm-hmm. it down to look at, to look you in the eye and have a conversation with you. So I know that some parents will take really drastic measures to to try to help solve what they what they see as a problem. Do you feel like is is there a situation when confiscating all of their electronics is the answer? It can be, but again, that's really a conversation that, that any parent is going to want to have with their kid. And it doesn't mean that you have to listen to them in terms of you have to do exactly what they say, but that that needs to be a conversation that you have together. So if, if you do end up taking away all of their devices for a set period of time, that ought to be something that kids understand why that's happening and that agree with you in terms of, of what's going on. And even that is going to itself be informed by what your kids say about why they're why are they texting at the dinner table? What's going on online that they feel like they need to have a connection to? Why are they prioritizing that communication over what's happening right there in that group? And there's probably going to be good reasons for it. Um, again, we see adults doing this kind of thing all the time, pulling out their phone to the dinner table and checking email and so on and so forth. It's not just kids. And when adults do it, we tend to understand that, well, yeah, that might be a little bit rude, but it could be really important. Uh, we just tend not to do that same thing with a, with a child. So, Interesting. again, everything needs to be part of that conversation with your children. I love I love how you're keeping this so positive. Yeah, because as a parent, you just think, oh, they're spending so much time on their phone. But, you know, just talk to them and, and see why it is that they're spending the time on the phone and what, what sort of activities they're engaging in. Um, obviously there is content out there that, and this, you know, is one of the reasons you would want to talk to your child about this, but there's content out there that as parents, we just don't want our children to be exposed to. Um, do you feel like it's a good idea to set up some sort of a block on their electronic device? Is that, is that a good idea? What, in what circumstances is it a good idea or in, are there circumstances in which it might not be a good idea? So I think that's also more of an age-based question. So again, it, it's always an it's complicated answer. And I think with some kids at a younger age level, especially those that are more vulnerable to stumbling into stuff like that, then a blocker could be a really positive addition to parent strategy for regulating media use. I think as kids get older, that becomes a little bit more problematic. And again, that becomes a conversation that you have with them around the kinds of media that they ought to be accessing, why they might want to access that media. And, and again, that shows a level of trust that allows kids to really use their own best judgment as to what's right and wrong. Um, I, I'm not really for uh, filters and blocking, for, especially for, for teenage children, because really we want them to be using their best judgment. They need to know that those spaces are out there and that they can accidentally find them. And really, you want to move to a strategy that's more along the lines of, well, did you see something that made you upset? And if you did, I'm here to listen to you and, and help you navigate what it is that you just saw, more so than blocking kids from spaces online and then punishing them when they actually end up there. I love that. You know, that's such a great thought because 
really, it, it seems like years ago the conversation would be, you know, if if this happens, but really now it's when this happens, when you see this or when you mm-hmm. hear this. They need to know that you are – they're in a safe place that they can they can come to you with this information and, and confide in you. And if – I guess if you're having that extreme reaction, you know, like you said, getting them in trouble, then they're probably going to be less likely to come to you when they do have that issue. Exactly. And with, in my conversation with kids about these exact kinds of problems um, – you do find that one of the big issues that they face, when you ask them about the risks and the the problems that they're having, one of those things is, well, you know, I ended up in this space online and I didn't really mean to be there and I'm not interested in consuming this media, but now I don't have anyone to talk to because I'm afraid that if I go talk to my parents, they'll just just revoke all of my internet access and I won't be able to go online again. Right. And that's not what they're interested in doing. They want to have a conversation about what they saw. They need help. They want help. Um, but, but again, if they think that they're going to get in trouble, if they think that, that that dialogue isn't open to them, then they're just not going to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, just in closing here, uh, Nathan, I'm interested to know if, if the advice that you've given us here today regarding the screen time for our children, does it change at all when we when we ask the question of, what does a healthy uh, screen time? What does healthy screen time look like for adults or in a marriage? Certainly, I mean, again, our lives as adults are just as mediated as children's lives are today. And and again, even with adults, the, the question isn't so much about the technology itself. It's not the technology per se that's really generating all these harmful effects. It's the fact that we need to pay very close attention to our everyday lives and the context in which we use this media. So if we're having problems outside of those technological experiences, often those lead to more problematic technology, technological use. So if we're talking even just of marriage, right, uh, it's not so much that there's the access that's the problem, it's that there are problems that lead people into doing things outside of a marriage that that might be problematic. Right. Well, Nathan, we really appreciate you here uh, being on the show with us today and uh, really shedding some more light on screen time and maybe uh, getting rid of some of the myths that we have about screen time and and, uh, helping us to understand uh, how our relationships should be with our children. His name is Nathan Fisk, and he's an assistant professor of cybersecurity education in the University of South Florida College of Education and the Community and Outreach Liaison for the Florida Center for Cybersecurity. Wow, he's given me a lot to chew on, and uh, maybe I won't be so harsh on my kids when I feel like they've had too much screen time, because it's more than just the time. It's it's about the relationship and, and uh, just talking to our children and talking to each other. We'll take a break. When we return, we'll continue the discussion and we'll actually be speaking with our good friends at BYU Sports Nation here on the Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143. It's 51 and 26 seconds here on the Matt Townsend Show, which means it's time to head on over to BYU Sports Nation to talk to Spencer and Jerem to see what's going on on their program. What's up, guys? Good to know our satellite clocks are synced up. 
Yeah, absolutely. We're the, we, know, we have the exact same time right now. That's important when you're trying to go top of the hour and get out at a certain time. Or whenever you're planning a heist. I've that's... yet to plan one outside of the, the Italian job. <laughs> and Fast and the, or Fate of the Furious 8. What was that show on Fox years ago, I think in the early 90s, where they synchronized watches? Was it Parker Lewis or something like that? Parker Lewis Can't Lose? Yeah. Yes. What do you mean they synchronized watches? Synchronized watches. Like they had this sh- shot where all of their arms would go in. Oh, nice. And they would like show the watches. Synchronized watches. Like, Swatches. That's awesome. Yeah, that's where we learned the term coolness. And uh, I think it was supposed to be kind of a spoof, not a spoof, of kind of supposed to be like Ferris Bueller's Day Off, the TV show, which, if you didn't know, there was actually also Ferris Bueller's Day Off, the TV show. I did not know that. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, but Parker Lewis was was better. Parker Lewis can't lose. Parker Lewis. (laughs) Synchronized watches. And he had that that friend. He had the friend with the trench coat that was always calling him Sir. <laughs> or no, sirs, because he would call both of them sir. And then there was the big, huge jock that would only say like one word at a time, like meat or oh. food. Eat now, yeah. Anyway, Odor. good times, good times. Hey, uh, Cole informs me that today ESPN is rolling out uh, the Ocho. ESPN the Ocho to today celebrate only. August eighth. Eight eight. That's exciting. Although it just makes me hungry for nachos. Yeah, baby. Love me some nachos. I want I want you to bring the tortilla chips. I want you to grate the cheese in the break room and then throw it in the microwave. That would be amazing. I'm all about too the, much work. I'm all about the fake cheese. You know, the stuff yeah. in the jar. In the oh, in the jar? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that you just like drip over it? Yes. Yeah, okay. I just I really just open up my mouth and Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, that's one way of doing it. <laughs> hey, how's your leg? Uh, I I don't know that it's uh I don't know if it's gangrene. Um, yesterday we were joking that it's kind of like a mood leg because it keeps changing color. Oh, oh good grief! Dude, I don't it know looked how much... I saw your leg, man. Yeah, and that was that was like, gosh, two weeks after it happened. So it's it's still going on, still happening. I'm worried for you. Oh, thank you. Jerem, how is your leg? You had something similar oh, happen to you. it's not as bad as yours, so it don't matter. Yeah, mine is bad. My no, I'm ankle... Good. It's not throbbing anymore, so I'm, I'm post-throbbing part. Should I be concerned... Like, wake up in the middle of the night part, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Should I be concerned that my ankle is still swollen after two weeks? Luckily, you're not serious, hopefully. Uh, <laughs> but um, I am, but I do have a doctor's appointment tomorrow, so I yeah. can get that checked out. Talk to the doc, Dr. J. Anyway, what's coming up on your show here in just about five minutes and 14 seconds? Oh, it's just an episode of Coach Knows Best. Kalani Satake answered a bevy of questions yesterday from the media. We're going to tell you what we learned, and we want to know what all of BYU Sports Nation feels like they know after nine practices into BYU football training camp. Mm, exciting. Two-on-one with Tooney Knuch, one of the offensive linemen. Why he thinks every day is his birthday. Plus... Brian Logan in studio. He'll preview uh, after further review tonight coming up on BYU TV at 7 Eastern. And Lauren Frankham with a brand new Between the Lines. She has a new lunch with Lauren. She sits down with Troy Warner, sophomore stud cornerback. Arm wrestling included. Really? Yes. Whoa. Wow. Lauren's strong. So, like, I won't be shocked if she beats Troy, but if she beats Troy, that's not looking good for the BYU. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, that sounds like a great show, an award-winning show. We think so. Or not. We're going to do it regardless. Okay. And I guess people wouldn't really tune in if you said it was just going to be a mediocre show. Well, that's for them to decide. <laughs> like Homecoming Spectacular. It's like, eh, I'll tell you if it's spectacular. All right. And it usually is. So put on a great show. Go home and watch The Ocho with a plate of nachos. Go home. Go to our office, bro. Oh, all right. We'll just, we'll just you know, dive I just, in all day, baby. Just thought you might want to see the wife and kids. but Well, you know. after practice. Okay. All right. Knock them dead. You guys have a great show. We'll talk to you tomorrow. All right. Thanks, Jeffrey. Do that leg. Get, get better, man. Okay. Thank you. We've got one more MT News story that we definitely want to share with you before we get to our hero story of the day. Dull and boring. What do you think that sounds like, Cole? Not an episode of this show. And hopefully not my Friday night this weekend. Mm-hmm. Dull and boring meet bland. <laughs> Dull Scotland and boring Oregon, two small communities united by unexciting names, have joined forces with a third. Blandshire, Australia. Dull and Boring became sister communities in 2012, and officials say the relationship has boosted the profile of both places. Dull officials on Friday hosted the mayor of the region of Blandshire, New South Wales, at a reception to celebrate the third member of a club dubbed the League of Extraordinary Communities. Boring has a population of about 10,000, while Blandshire has about 6,000 people, and Dull is a hamlet with just 84 occupants. Aww. Dennis uh, Malloy, uh, who uh, provost of the Perth and King Ross region, Kinross region, that's home to Dole, said the relationship with Boring and Bland had created a real feel-good factor for their communities with quirky names. And he said the alliance could expand. We found ordinary and dreary both in America and I think they could soon be part of it all, he said. I like this transcontinental community. In an age where we're all so divided from each other, Australia and the UK and America are all getting together over weird town names. It's bringing us all together. Our blandness Absolutely. unites us. Anyway, as you know, we like to end each show with our hero story of the day. A U.K. dad saved his baby son's life after the youngster suddenly stopped breathing during a feed and suffered a heart attack. This is really close to home for me because I've got a young one at home, two months old. Dad Liam Blastland frantically applied CPR to his tiny youngster Thomas as he tried to get him breathing again. Thankfully, moments later, the three-week-old started crying just as paramedics arrived. Mom, Holly Ganson, 24, said after Thomas was born, he was fine. He had a little jaundice and was kept in the hospital for treatment for six days. But it was 17 days later at their home when Holly and her boyfriend, Liam's uh, nightmare, began. Thomas had suffered a heart attack, and both Holly and Liam, who also have a three-year-old daughter, Amelia, are are full of praise for the paramedics and ambulance crew who attended and uh, from us ringing 911, it took them just 14 minutes to get Thomas into the hospital, and we can't thank them enough, said Liam. After Thomas was moved to a third hospital, the doctors found the problem. It seems Thomas' heart was wired wrong and needed open-heart surgery immediately, said Holly. Again, we can never thank the doctors and nurses enough. Wow. Again, another hero story that is a little too close to home, but... Uh, Way to go. Way to be attentive and save that child's life. 
Well, that's the show every day here on BYU Radio Sirius XM 143. We try to bring you the latest and greatest in the news and information that can help you live more informed lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Until tomorrow.